Councilmember Nixon? Here. Councilmember Black? Here. Councilmember Curtis? Here. Councilmember Falcone? Councilmember Falcone? Council Member, oh. Still moved. Second. <clears throat> Aye. Your mic isn't on. Please continue with the roll. Councilmember Pascal. Here. Deputy Mayor Arnold. Here. Mayor Sweet. Here. Thank you. Our study session tonight is on two subjects. The first is the Lake Street South and Lake Washington Boulevard Promenade and Concept Development Study. The second study session subject relates to the Neighborhood Traffic Control Program policy revisions. If we finish the study session early, we may go into executive session to discuss possible litigation and or the performance of a public employee. In any event, we will we do expect to reconvene our regular meeting at approximately 7.30 p.m. City Manager. Okay, thank you, Madam Mayor, members of the council. Uh, so tonight we wanna to present both of those topics and to provide those presentations, our transportation manager, Jill Fund, and our transportation planner, Victoria Kovacs, will be making the presentations. Uh, we'll be starting with the Lake Street South discussion and we're just looking for council feedback on the various options that have been identified and there'll be some recommended next steps during the presentation. Great. Welcome, Joel, Victoria. Great. Thank you, City Manager, and thank you, Mayor. We do have a short presentation to share with you. And hopefully you can see my screen. Yes. Great. So Joel and I are both excited to be here to share with you the results of the Lake Washington Boulevard Promenade Study. And we'll review the study background and kind of the purpose for why we did this study, as well as some of the existing conditions and data analysis that we had done. We'll review the four corridor options as outlined in the memo, as well as some other recommendations that can be done, regardless of which option the council might be interested in. We'll recap some of the evaluation criteria we looked at, and uh, we'll conclude with a discussion and next steps. So consideration of a promenade on Lake Washington Boulevard has been considered for quite some time. I pulled out some policies from the 2015 comprehensive plan, specifically in the shoreline area and the transportation master plan. There's policies like the first one, enhance Lake Washington Boulevard Northeast and Lake Street South to improve their function for scenic views and recreational activities, as well as for local access and as a commute route. And the transportation master plan does have a specific action to consider developing a master plan for a lakefront promenade. More recently, the active transportation plan adopted last year also highlights to enhance pedestrian and bicycle facilities on the Lake Washington waterfront. This study looked at the waterfront from 2nd Avenue South to the intersection with Lakeview Drive near Carillon Point. And it was a council ask as part of the June budget process to conduct data gathering and analysis and design concepts to address the issues and needs in the corridor. And the purpose of this study was to conduct that further analysis to identify constraints and opportunities 
and develop and evaluate street design alternatives to improve the comfort of walking, cycling, and rolling along Lake Street, Lake Washington Boulevard to attract more people to the waterfront. And as I mentioned, it's both a regional and key local connection. And now I'm gonna hand it off to Joel to talk about some of the existing uh, data findings that we found. Good evening, Mayor, Council, City Manager. So um, yeah, I'm gonna talk about um, a quick summary of some uh, data collection that we did in advance of performing um, the study um, that was in the summer of 2021. Um, so uh, just quick context setting, uh, as you probably all are well aware, um, you know, there's, this corridor is really a you know, gem along the, the lake already with the three large waterfront parks, Brink, Marsh, and Houghton. Um, additionally, three additional um, access points and uh, all of that uh, within a mile that about a mile that links uh, Carillon Point and uh, downtown Kirkland. And um, so this area is very popular. Um, we have high pedestrian and bicycle usage along the corridor. There are, of course, sidewalks present on both sides currently, you know, of varying widths, five to 10 feet. Um, and we have on-street bike lanes, and that is all part of the um, Lake Washington Loop, which is a really popular uh, recreational cycling uh, corridor, especially on the weekends. Um, we do have quite a bit of volume, vehicle volume in this corridor, about 15,000 vehicles a day. Uh, and when we look at um, the the amount of people, we did a approximation of people moving in the corridor. We estimate that on a on the Thursday that we collected data during the summer, about 11% of all the um, people moving in the corridor were either doing that by walking or biking or rolling. And then that increased all the way to 18% on, um, on a Saturday. One other thing that I would note is that um, as part of this data collection, we did find that um, uh, we didn't have a, a major speeding problem in this corridor. Um, vehicle Average vehicle speeds were pretty much in line with um, the posted speed limit. Uh, this area supports a lot of residential development. Um, and this just, you know, illustrates some of those, um, those activities, including garbage pickup, uh, of course, there's a lot of varying degrees of vehicle access to vehicle parking along the corridor, and this is in addition to um, deliveries and um, people uh, who are, uh, you know, providing services to folks on both sides of the corridor, as well as um, mail pickup. So um, a lot of different activities supporting those, those existing uses along the corridor. Um, <clears throat> On-street parking, this corridor uh, historically, back you know many years, was a you know four-lane two-four-lane corridor, two vehicle lanes in each direction, and that was uh, in one of the very early road diets in the region. Um, it was converted to the existing cross section here that added a whole lot of parking along the corridor. Um, curb to curb, it's about 
typically about 44 feet wide, and um, there's uh, 60 feet of right-of-way um, pretty much consistently along the entire corridor. Um, the on-street parking begins at 60th, and that's you know, north of um, Houghton Beach Park there, and um, continues all the way uh, to downtown. There's a combination of um, a lot of unregulated parking where we don't have any time limits or anything. And then of course, at the north end of the corridor, there is a two, two hour time limit. And then uh, parking is prohibited in front of the parks uh, at night. Um, and then in addition, when we looked at this from a parking utilization perspective, we found that um, on Thursdays, uh, the parking utilization varied from about 33% to 57%. And then on Saturdays, it varied um, corridor wide from a, from 28% to 60, uh, 62%. Um, and so that shows that there's actually quite a bit of um, parking available in the corridor. And the conclusion from the data collection effort that our consultant did is that um, the, the corridor would likely be able to support um, eliminating, uh, you know, a parking to the to the degree that a project would need to do that, um, in, including eliminating parking along one side of all of um, Lake Washington Boulevard to um, implement a, like a promenade concept. One thing that's worth noting is that the um, the parking popularity is not exactly consistent along the entire um, corridor. It's certainly the demand for parking is highest at the north end of the of the corridor near downtown. Next on the list is like the south end of the corridor, and then the middle is um, is really where the the parking is um, consistently. It seemed to be the lowest demand levels for um, for parking. One other interesting parking note: we did have um, collect data um, that is anonymized. Um, uh, information from a company that collects um, origins and destinations. And so we did look at that information and found that um, on uh, a typical, on the on weekdays, about 57% of the trips are less than five mi miles um, parking trips. And surprisingly, um, on weekdays, 15% of trips um, were actually uh, less than a mile. So um, and then on the weekends, not surprisingly, those short the percentage of short trips uh, was reduced. More people were traveling to Kirkland from further to visit. Um, this data was collected in the summer, so you know we it's, it's intuitive that those people, the more people are visiting from out of town. Um, but it really did seem to indicate that um, there's a potential mode shift also when it comes to parking is some of those short trips, um, uh, you know, really short trips in particular for people who are able to do so. Um, it's an option to, you know, change, change modes. And, and again, we found that the, the shortest vehicle <laughs> trips were um, also closer to um, closer to downtown. That's where that was really concentrated. And then next slide, please. Um, we also looked at lighting, and um, as you may not be too surprising, um, as, as I'm sure many of you have been on the corridor at night, the lighting um, 
has kind of, you know, it hasn't changed in many, many years while the context of the corridor has. And so there, um, we did analyze the lighting and there is street lighting pre present. There is no specific pedestrian lighting and the lighting is not particularly uniform. There's areas that are bright and areas that um, don't have much lighting at all. And then um, the lighting is not uh, we don't have dedicated lighting at the crosswalks. We have done some work over the years to um, try to enhance lighting at the crosswalks and provide adequate lighting, but it's um, been always been using the existing streetlights along the corridor. And then um, when it comes to crash history, uh, this couple maps from our um, Vision Zero plan that we recently adopted, uh, this is a, um, a, a high, we've identified this as a high priority corridor in the Vision Zero plan. Um, that is uh, related to the number of crashes. And, um, and in the five years history that we reviewed for the plan from 2016 to 2020, we have four serious injuries. Um, and, uh, and two of those involved pedestrians and one of them involved cyclists, a cyclist. Um, the crash, we did identify a couple of specific crash risks that uh, a couple of patterns. One of those is um, pedestrians in crosswalks in dark, uh, in the dark and at dusk. And then also um, northbound cyclists uh, and having conflicts with vehicles um, driving into uh, on, onto the side streets and onto driveways on that um, northbound side, which was one of the interesting patterns that we'd seen that was kind of concerning. Uh, we also, we did, this was more of a, you know, technical analysis um, with, the, with the study and pulling all this information together. And so we didn't do any specific outreach, but we do hear a lot from the community about this corridor. So we did um, go through uh, Q alert and um, through the, you know, my Kirk Kirkland and um, look at uh, the kinds of requests we get historically and um, the, the vegetation, we hear a lot of vegetation concerns, um, a lot of um, concerns about sidewalk damage. We've heard about bike you know, debris and bike lane, concern about speeding and noise from vehicles. And then we did have specific uh, comments around um, three uh, rapid flashing beacon locations, the one at uh, 62nd, the one at 64th, and then the one at 10th Avenue um, South, which is the one, um, I think that's the one that's pictured here. But um, so, uh, yeah. So those are some of the things that we've heard and we you know, took into account when we were um, looking at the corridor designs. And all of this information fed into um, developing along with, you know, our goals and policies and um, kind of what the, the mission of this with the corridor was to look at how we can make it more of a promenade. And so that all fed into the corridor design options, which um, Victoria will go over now. Great. So before we get into the options, I thought it would be helpful to have a quick couple cross sections about what is there today. So on Lake Street, the north end of the corridor, it is a shared lane between people biking and people driving with some wide parking lanes, and it is more the downtown 
context. And at 2nd Avenue South and, and pretty much south of that point, um, there are on-street bike lanes, parking lanes on either side and, and drive lanes. The sidewalk width does vary quite a bit, um, but it is no less than, than five feet at any point. So with looking at the scenario options or the design options, we looked at a lot. We looked at 15, kind of combined them down to five general categories and then refined them into the corridor length options I'll present to you now. And those were refined according to that project goal to improve the comfort of walking in, rolling along the corridor, as well as feedback we heard from the Transportation Commission and our own city standards. So option one would combine both bike lanes on the west side, the waterfront side of the corridor, and it would maintain parking on the east side of the corridor. And there would be some sort of separation between the on-street bike lanes and the drive lanes that could look like a bunch of different things. That would be a, a bigger conversation with maintenance, but uh, essentially that would be the configuration of the corridor. And that would allow us to maintain a fairly high number of spaces. There would be some transitions needed at the north and south ends, uh, back to the one-way bike lanes further south uh, and what happens in downtown. And we would expect planning level costs around $11 million. And as I mentioned, you know how that bike lane is configured is also another kind of consideration. It could be on street painted with buffers or you could kind of do the full meal and, and raise the bike lanes to the sidewalk level, widen the sidewalk a bit, add trees. Of course, that kind of level of civil engineering is a lot more involved, new stormwater, um, things of that nature. So the cost would be much higher. But that is essentially the option. And I'll just quickly share the rule plot that we included as part of your packet as well, just to frame what these maps are. So they show from uh, the north is to the right, so Carillon Point is down here to the left, and downtown is here to the right. And it shows generally what that cross-section is as it applies to the corridor. So connecting to the existing bike lanes south of Lakeview Drive and south of the, the corridor study extents. Um, it would be one-way bike lanes as they are now. There'd be some two-way transition at the current RRFB in front of the I-bars, where you could begin the two-way um, protected bike lanes. And that would extend all the way to downtown. And actually, we would recommend, instead of ending at 2nd Avenue South, where the bike lanes end today, to extend all the way to the future uh, scramble intersection at Kirkland Avenue strictly from a connectivity and safety standpoint. Of course, this would need to have a bigger conversation with uh, businesses and parking utilization, but uh, strictly from an engineering connectivity standpoint, there would need to be a safe all ages and abilities transition from um, that point at second to, you know, Marina Park and Lake Shore Plaza. We'll go back to the PowerPoint now. Option two would be very similar to option one. The only difference is you would keep parking on the west side instead of the east side, but the cost would be the same. And those same transition points um, would occur 
of the south and north ends of the corridor. Option three is keeping bike lanes where they are on either side and adding a protective buffer. And again, what that is or what that looks like, uh, there are very op varying options what we could do with that. Uh, slightly lower cost, but about the same uh, at around $10 million. And then option four, if we really did do a full shared use promenade, uh, again, that would be a very dramatic civil engineering investment where we'd redo the stormwater, trees, curbs, everything. And so that would be a, a significantly higher estimated cost around $21 million. And again, there'd still be transitions that would need to occur uh, at the south and north ends. And this was really used as a, as a comparison, as a, as a baseline to the other options. And there are a couple other recommendations that came out of the study, regardless of which option you might be interested in furthering. Um, Jill, do you want to walk through these? Sure. So um, the standard I, one, I, one idea that is baked into these other alternatives, but also stands alone is um, standardizing the RRFBs at all 10 low, 10 crossings and um, implementing rapid flashing beacons at the crosswalks that don't currently have them. Um, 2nd Avenue South, 10th, 10th Avenue South, and um, 59th um, are the highest priority based on crash history and adjacent land uses. Um, interestingly, um, 10th Avenue South is a 2023 NSP project idea. Um, and then um, 59th is a, is a priority, um, was identified as a priority because um, of some um, the a crash that occurred there in 2018. One thing is we were looking at this more closely, we realized that the RFB was installed um, post-crash in, um, and kind of in response to that in March of 2019. And then um, we do have at 62nd and 64th other um, citizen RRFB requests. Um, also uh, looking at crosswalk illumination, uh, refreshing pavement markings is another thing that we continue to look at. Um, and then also Curb extensions at some of these locations would be another, another thing that could be done independently of some, some of this work. It would, of course, you would have to work out the stormwater issues and exactly the design of those. But um, that does provide a feeling of comfort for people crossing and puts them out more in, the, in, the, in a safe space in the street where they are more visible to people um, walking. And then uh, another item that does show up in those other planning level cost estimates that Victoria shared uh, is uh, lighting improvements. And so some of the uh, concepts that uh, could stand on their own would be uh, installing pedestrian scale lighting along the park frontages that can be uh, rather dark right now. Um, filling in the areas where there is zero illuminance along the corridor with, um, with you know, street lights, or looking specifically back at the marked crosswalks and replacing and relocating light poles to bring them up to standards for um, light, light levels and, and pole placement. So those are some of the smaller projects that, that were identified um, 
And with that, I'm going to pass it back to Victoria to talk about the evaluation. Great. So for those four corridor options, we looked at a whole host of evaluation criteria. This is the final list, which is, you know, priority on safety, mitigation of crash, crash risk factors for walking, cycling, and driving, uh, improving the comfort and level of stress for people walking and biking on the corridor. We want it to be an intuitive facility, you know, not confusing for anyone using the corridor, regardless of what mode you're using. Uh, maintenance consideration, certainly something that played in, you know, if there was a phasing potential, could we do something in the short term and then come in later in the long term for um, a variety of design configurations? Uh, accommodating those residential services like mailbox, trash, driveways, pickups and drop-offs, uh, the impact to existing street peat trees, uh, the amount of on-street parking that could be maintained, the potential for stormwater improvements, and the relative costs. There were a couple other criteria we looked at, but we found, you know, all the options really achieved these criteria, and really we realized we wouldn't have proposed an alternative if they didn't meet these criteria, so we called them screening criteria, and that would be traffic calming, you know, physical separation between modes, um, addressing some of those sidewalk damage panels, and the ability to accommodate utilities. So this is the evaluation matrix that was also part of your packet. And the way this matrix works is it identifies where one option might have an advantage, which is a smaller dot, or a significant advantage, which is a bigger dot. And when we presented these to Transportation Commission, uh, the commission felt that option one balanced the most of these criteria in terms of you know, improving the safety for walking and biking, but also balancing the needs for residential services and maintaining the most amount of on-street parking. This evaluation matrix did include a no-build option, at least for reference, and that um, big promenade, so the, the full spectrum of what could be done on the corridor. And in looking at them strictly evenly across the board, you know, option one and option two scored quite closely. And when additional points were given to more of the safety and comfort factors like crash risk factors or level of traffic stress, um, option one and two definitely rose above the bus, the others. So with that, um, we do have a couple recommended next steps and then we'd like to answer your questions or, or discussion. So Joel, you wanna take it over? Sure. Um, one thing that I did want to highlight is that the the Transportation Commission um, did look, we did take this information to the Transportation Commission and um, they uh, supported the option option one and felt like that was the the best balance of the various modes um, provided um, the the most amount of on street parking and um, also provided the um, most intuitive and comfortable facility for people um, traveling you know people traveling by bike or or walking or rolling along the corridor so um, so uh, 
what we're recommending for next steps is um, including um, a preferred corridor design alternative in the 2024 uh, TMP update. Um, when we think of this as a preferred corridor, it really is about the, um, the, the kind of the funding amount. This would certainly not be the, the last um, the last conversation about this, we would uh, engage uh, the community in this during the TMP update, and then likely at any point once you actually once we actually move forward with the the project. Um, but uh, the, what we wanted to get out of this exercise was the relative feasibility of um, implementing a promenade concept and then also the um, relative cost of that because um, depending on the option um, would, uh, you know, when we're trying to build a 20-year transportation plan and prioritize that, that's a, you know, key element that um, this, that this process will help guide. Um, we are going to be evaluating the posted speed limit on the corridor as part of the 2023 citywide speed limit policy update and implementation project that we'll be getting going on here shortly. One small idea that came out of the study that would be a uh, fairly straightforward one to implement is implementing one-way circulation at Houghton Beach par parking lot to reduce the conflicts and, and, uh, and, and that type of thing at that location. And then also uh, identifying a preferred parking management strategy for the corridor as part of the broader evaluation of downtown parking in uh, 2023. Uh, just every time we're thinking about this is just making sure that we're, we're mindful of the role that um, this corridor plays in that and how, um, how those two things are related. And um, so with that, uh, we'd be happy to, Victoria and I'd be happy to answer any questions um, or, um, and happy to hear your feedback. Thank you. Thank you both. Who wants to start us off? Councilmember Nixon. <clears throat> Thanks very much. Uh, well, uh, as you know, my concern has always been with the loss of parking. Um, and I'm, I'm still concerned with about the loss of half the parking. Um, and the data shows that the peak usage is currently 57%. That means if you lose half the parking, it's going to be completely full at, at times. <clears throat> and we try to, to at least say that it would be mitigated to some extent um, by the fact that some people could walk or bike. But, of course, we know that's not true for people with limited mobility or people with young children, et cetera. Um, uh, so I, I, I continue to have that concern. Um, but the question I have is, did you look at um, whether the parking is used mostly by people who are using the west side of the street, like visiting people on the west side and visiting the parks, or is the parking used mostly by people on the east side, because it seems like uh, who are you know residents or visiting residents, because um, it just seems like that would be a factor. Because if you choose the wrong side for where you put the parking, then you are increasing the number of times people have to cross the street. Was that assessed at all? We were not 
able to get to um, the the desk the specific destinations of um, where people were once they had left their vehicles where they were actually going one one thing we did observe is that um, is that there is one of the reasons in the end that we felt like because we didn't know that um, that uh, the parking on the east side was preferred is that because there is a less less prevalence of driveways on that side, we lose less parking by um, by eliminating parking on the west side. Although, you know, for things like the parks and things like that, it is a um, it's you know it's it's a street to cross. The other feeling was is that. Um, the the treatments we're we're bringing to the street overall would also help make that crossing um, more comfortable for everybody uh, with some of the other elements we're we're putting in and the shortening of the crossing and the those types of things. Yeah, yeah, I agree that especially putting in more RRFBs, uh, if you can convince people to actually walk to them and use them instead of jaywalking, and so we got to make sure we don't make jaywalking legal, um, uh, you know that 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 would mitigate the concern um, because of the curb bulbs and the RRFBs uh, making it safer to cross. Thank you. Thank you, Councilmember Curtis. Thank you, Madam Mayor, and thank you, Joel and Victoria. I am really glad we did this study. This is something that we particularly heard during COVID that um, our community was interested in doing this, and um, I just think it's great. I prefer design option one. I do have a question about option four. Um, it's beautiful, but I see on your matrix that you anticipate more conflicts in that area, and I'm assuming that means there's more pedestrian and bike conflicts when there's a shared, uh, shared lane like that. Is that what's happening there? Yes, exactly. Okay, thank you. Um, so you anticipated one of my questions in option 1B is if we have a six and a half foot median, I'd love to see how we can put some street trees and vegetation in there. We are potentially losing some very beautiful trees if we move forward with this project. The mayor and I are admiring the Katsura trees that will go away. Um, one of my questions is, we're stopping the double lanes at 59th, which is the north end of Houghton Beach Park as opposed to the south end. Was that a design constraint or what was the reasoning behind that? Yeah, the reasoning behind that was we wanted to maintain the center left turn lane, which provides access to the Houghton Beach parking lot and to the office building across the street, which is also public parking after business hours for the park. Okay. So Thank it was really more of an operational. Okay, good. Thank you. That makes sense. Um, and I really like the opportunity to extend this all the way north to the scramble. The scramble is going to be transformational in that area, and I really like that we would include those bike lanes to that. Um, when we do the speed evaluation, I have a request that we extend the speed valuation past Carillon Point, the speed increases at 35 miles an hour. As soon as people hit that light, they accelerate on their way to Bellevue, and that's where we're getting a lot of our noise complaints. And my suspicion is they're speeding in that area, but um, I could be wrong. Um, I support the one-way circulation at Houghton Beach. There are a lot of conflicts. I use that beach a lot. 
One of the suggestions I have is to consider a drop-off, load, unload designated area in um, both that park and Marsh Park so that people with small children and paddle boards and toys will have a chance to unload their items before they have to go park. Um, and that was it. Thank you. Thank you. Councilmember Pascal. Thank you, Madam Mayor. So before I can offer my comments, I wanted to read a little bit, a little statement for, for everyone. And then I will kind of talk in my own words, but I'm pleased that we've ha we have this opportunity to consider the feasibility of various policy options for the future of Lake Street and Lake Washington Boulevard. And so in the interest of full disclosure, I do want the council and the community to know that the feasibility analysis was developed by the city, but in consultation with the Transpo Group, a Kirkland-based consulting firm where I, where I am a partner. Uh, I did not participate in this work, nor was I even exposed to the work. And in any case, the work is now complete. And so as we now explore what we as a city and the community can do to redefine this corridor, it's a conversation I want to be a part of, and I believe I have, a thoughtful, I have thoughtful contributions to offer. That being said, uh, I just want to say that I'm really glad that we're beginning to reimagine this corridor. So thank you to your leadership and your efforts, Victoria and Joel. Very much appreciate it. I remember first talking about the idea of a promenade in 2008, 15 years ago. And this idea was first, I can recall this idea was first brought up by former council member Tom Neer when he and I served on the Transportation Commission together. And it was, I know it was a topic that he was very passionate about and I, and I, I talked to him over the weekend I, and he was very excited to see this uh, concept. So it's great, it's great that we're here today. Uh, I think a lot of the things that we're doing here is we're evaluating different feasibility aspects. Uh, and we're trying to address a number of the questions that were raised when we when we talked about this a couple years ago during COVID um, and looking at a pilot study. And there was very uh, very good questions raised and Councilmember Nixon raised issue about parking. And I think we have now, we have a lot better data to be able to help answer those questions and, and help make some thoughtful decisions going forward. The parking utilization, I think, uh, is helpful in that I think there's opportunities to address um, parking in a way, and I think the management strategies that you suggest as a recommendations is part of that. Uh, so that's uh, happy to see that. The the usage numbers were really were really interesting to see, just how much usage this corridor gets uh, today, uh, particularly in the summer, uh, by both pedestrians and people on bikes. Uh, it's good to have those numbers because it's pretty it's pretty astonishing. I don't know of too many other corridors that, that have that amount of of um, walkers and rollers. So and think how much more could actually use a corridor if there were even uh, enha better enhanced facilities. So I think there's just lots of uh, ways that we can we can really think to to use use the corridor in. Um, to enhance it for all, all people. And I think about the parks that are along the corridor, uh, downtown, Carillon Point, you have all these destinations that people want to go to, not just within the community, the people, but people visiting to the community. So, uh, 
In terms of my, what, my thoughts on the options, I, I also support option one. It seems like it provides the highest level of comfort for users. Uh, it separates the bike, the bike facilities from the walking facilities, and I think that is particularly important on high usage uh, corridors because if because we all know if they're all combined, um, it's pretty much you're 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 dodging everyone if especially if you're on a bike and that can be dangerous. Um, I I also like option one because it allows allows more parking. I think. At first, I was option two, where parking was on the, the water side. I was like, oh, that, that makes sense, and people don't have to cross the street, but you actually do lose a lot, you know, quite a, quite a number of more stalls. Um, but I think those are things to kind of explore with the community, too, to see what they think. Uh, I do want to make sure that anything, as we move forward, that there are some very narrow sections of the sidewalk that we do look at what it's going to take to bring them up to at least a uniform 10 feet. Um, the entire distance. Um, I just had a couple questions to, to ask, and now you kind of heard where, where my thoughts are. Could you kind of just talk about the public process kind of going forward? I know we're suggesting to put it into the transportation master plan, but this, this is a big deal probably for a lot of different people, um, not just folks that live along the corridor, but people that use the corridor and people that might come to the corridor from other areas, how, how are we going to make sure that we get the input that we need? Um, um, because the transportation master plan process is, is a bigger process, right? It's, we're talking about a lot of different things there. I, I really want to make sure that we're very open and transparent with the community. I think from transportation perspective is that um, as we look at the corridor and we gather all of this data um, and you look at what's going on in the corridor, it does, you know, it is, um, you know, really beloved by the community and, um, and there, you know, it's, it's a dense area. There's a lot of people who live on the corridor that this is, this is their only, um, this is how they get to and from their residences or their you know, that, that, you know, there are a few businesses along here and stuff like that. And so there's, um, it's really important that we think about that going forward. And so um, we really do envision this being a multiple step process of, you know, um, these projects uh, don't, don't happen overnight and it's going to be a really big ambitious project. So we would see it being a, a conversation at more of a high level as part of the TMP update. And, um, and then um, depending on where it lands through that prioritization process and that discussion is um, that would give us some direction to go out and, um, and uh, have a, when we are ready, have a more uh, detailed conversation with the community and, um, and it would be much more, uh, we'd be pretty much starting with uh, create a promenade and and um, we, this is the kind of you know funding we have available and um, and then have a conversation about how uh, best to make that so it works for the broader community as well as the people that will rely on it um, every day. So um, 
I, I see this as, you know, the, the beginning of, um, of a, you know, a long conversation as we move from kind of idea down to, um, you know, what we would ultimately, you know, put out there on the street. Okay. Yeah. I think, I think having that, that public input is going to be critical. And I just, not just because council is saying, Hey, we like option one or two or three or whatever, that the community also sees that there was a breadth of evaluation done of many different options that we don't want to lose that. I think that's, that's an important storyline that, that we want to share um, as, as more people learn about this. So um, definitely support the recommended next step. So thank you. Thank you, uh, Councilor Deputy Mayor Arnold. Thank you, Madam Mayor, and thank you, Joel and Victoria. Really appreciate the level of analysis and thinking that was done as part of this promenade study covering safety, parking, resident access, the street channelization, and, and, and the protected bike lanes. A lot of great thinking here. Um, uh, to support option one, and I, um, Joel, you've uh, highlighted the fact that there are this will be uh, likely happening in phases, and the memo talks about several things that could happen as quick wins, and I appreciated that look um, uh, mentioning forward. With option one, there is work to do to have the sidewalk built out to full width in places. I'd like to make sure that we have some more details on those sidewalk projects, because while um, there are quick wins with paint and other things that you mentioned in the memo, I also want to make sure that we understand the individual sidewalk projects so we can start to consider those for the CIP and, and other things, because those may be the more involved, costly things we want to do first um, in conjunction with some of those other quick wins, but I'd like to understand what that is, whether there's right-of-way acquisition that needs to happen and, and things like that. Uh, because uh, when I think about... Um, uh, a promenade, even though some of the more um, significant visible changes are going to be in handle, how we handle people rolling, uh, I also think about people walking. I want to make sure that we front load some of those investments as well. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Councilmember Black. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor, and uh, thank you, Joel and Victoria, for the presentation and all the hard work. And um, I agree with a lot of what's been said by my uh, fellow council members and um, appreciate the Transportation Commission's recommendation of option one and I think I agree with with them and it sounds like most of my fellow council members that um, if we were proceeding with this today I think I'd really want us to uh, proceed with option one and I appreciate that Joel I guess I should ask the the Transportation Commission would continue to be part of any process going forward as far as looking at uh, more of the details associated with these options, or even yes. or even the details associated with option one, including the the sort of staged approach to option one, yeah, they would be continue to be involved, and this is an item that is on their work plan and will continue to be for the foreseeable future. Okay, that's great. A couple questions then um, about money. Um, the um, the dollar figures we saw in the presentation, um, Victoria, if I wasn't mistaken, you, I think you described them as design dollars uh, or something to that effect. That's not the capital costs. Yes, that would be the, the design and construction, or I guess it would be the construction costs. Oh, it does uh, include construction. 
Mm-hmm. Thank you. Okay, I have a little bit better sense of the of the of the magnitude. Then, thank you. I appreciate that. So, um, then, really, just one question. Um, I don't know if it's a question, Joel. I know you have a ton of experience seeking grant funding uh, for tra- transportation projects. Julie, I'm sure you do too, and of course, our city manager does. Just, I would, I'd like to explore a little bit just the likelihood that the, uh, this type of project would be uh, a successful applicant for grant money. Uh, from some of our known uh, sources of grant funding. I, yeah. I, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, mm-hmm. but just based on your experience and knowledge and experience. Did well, I say experience have... twice? <laughs> That's how experienced you are, Joel. You're so experienced <laughs> that I mentioned experience twice. There we go. Um, thank you for that. Um, uh, so um, I would say that uh, in, especially um, once – um, downtown is downtown Kirkland is if it is designated as an urban center um, uh, regionally that that would certainly help our competitiveness. Um, we do feel like because of the regional nature of this corridor that it should be um, competitive um, for for grants. Um, that's always a little bit of a you know um, roll of the dice one. Uh, challenge in some ways that we have talked a bit about is that um, the facilities do exist. So um, there are bike lanes already, there are sidewalks already. And so that um, does, uh, you know, for better or for worse, um, we're trying to go, I feel like from good to great here. Um, And so in some ways that might harm our competitiveness, unfortunately. Um, But I think that be given the, um, you know, the volumes on the corridor and the level of people that we are serving, um, that would definitely, you know, be in our favor as well. So um, we feel pretty good about this being that kind of, you know, competitive process that we could um, put out there um, regionally. I'm sorry, I can't. Um, I think you're. Thank you, Joel. That was I appreciate that. Um, if um, if option one was included in the transportation master plan, then um, it's it would be an unfunded project. So it's going to be competing with uh, for uh, uh, budget dollars and grant dollars from with uh, the the myriad of additional transportation projects that we have in our transportation master plan. Correct. Yes. But it'd be, it'd be, it would be competing on, on even ground, but it would be competing. Yes, we would be, you know, with the TMP, we'll be adopting a new 20-year plan and then, um, you know, thinking about how a project like this would, um, you know, prioritize against, um, these are conversations we'll be having with the commission and with council in the future, how a project like that would prioritize against improvements along the cross Kirkland corridor or, you know, improvements in the 85th station area. And, um, you know, unfortunately we can't do all the projects first. You, I I know you know that, but um, those are the kinds of discussions that we would um, need to have as part of that um, development of the TMP. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Just a couple of questions for me, for you too. Um, And, and thank you for this work. I think, uh, it came together really in a beautiful way. 
But when you did the surveys, when you, when you um, were counting walkers and bikers, did you also count all the traffic on the west side of the street? Yeah, the we did that with um, video, and um, the video covered both um, both sides of the street. Okay, great. So those numbers are incorporated in there. Yes. The difficulty that I have with the west side of the street is that it is too narrow to walk two people at a time down it. Not, you know, even worse with a dog or two. Um, so I don't know if the plans incorporate any level of increasing the width of that um, of that sidewalk. I expect it would be pretty expensive. The other question I have is I also support option one, but what I would like to see, it, I would like to see a rendering of what the interface of option one at the scramble, scramble would look like. That okay. is it. Yeah, I one I would say one thing that we have thought about with the scramble is, um, you know, transitioning from a two-way facility um, can be uh, two-way cycling. You know, mm -hmm. facility can be tricky, um, and the scramble is a great way to um, make that a lot easier because the the cyclists would um, be able to. You know, there'd be the all walk phase. Um, it would be a little bit, you know, chaotic, but at the same time, it would provide, <laughs> yeah, but it would provide for a very nice transition for people to, um, you know, go, th go to, through um, down Kirkland Avenue and through Lake, Lake Shore Plaza and connect up with the, um, you know, the existing cycling facilities that go to the north. So um, the, the downtown is a bit of a gap in the existing you know, biking system. So um, it would really create a very comfortable, continuous, you know, connection through the, through, through downtown. Great. Thank you for that. Any further discussion? I think you got your work done tonight. With that, city manager, you want to transition? I think so. So we have the same two presenters, but we're going to go a little more small scale. So this is an update on the neighborhood traffic control program. And again, we're looking for council feedback on tonight. Once again, here are Victoria and Joel. So uh, I, um, we're going to change things up. And uh, Victoria started the last one. I'm going to start the this one. So um, yeah, we're um, pretty pleased to been wanting to get to this for a while um, and re kind of reinvigorate and reinvent the the neighborhood traffic control. Um, program policy um, and with some revisions. And so that's what we're here to talk to you this evening about. We do, um, Victoria did a great job of, um, you'll see on these first few slides, some wonderful historical documents um, from, the, um, from the past uh, because this program has been around a long time and has been a great program for the community. And this is really not a, um, this is a refresh and um, refurbishing a very successful program so that it can bring it, it's, it's very, very 2000 right now and we want to bring it up into the 2020s. So um, with that all, next slide, please. So just a little quick history. Um, so this program was established in 1993. Um, to address residential traffic volume and speed concerns. 
um, it had a, um, a quite a bit of uh, staff resource committed to it. And at the same time, uh, Kirkland was quite a bit smaller at the time. And so there was a lot of focus on uh, the neighborhood, neighborhood uh, traffic control and speeding concerns. And then the program was uh, discontinued in 2009 uh, due to the Great Recession. The neighborhood traffic program co um, coordinators um, no longer work for the city. And then um, in 2011, with annexation, the city expanded. Um, and and then in 2014, the city was able to rehire a, um, a part-time neighborhood traffic um, control program coordinator. Um, it was a part-time position um, for a much larger city. And so it was really kind of a different service level than was the uh, initial um, in, you know, iteration of the program. And then we had another gap in having somebody to run the program in 2020 when um, uh, Kathy Robertson retired. Uh, and then, of course, in 2022, we adopted our Vision Zero Action Plan, which really focused on a, on a safe systems approach and uh, wanted to, um, to really kind of lean into that with the Neighborhood Traffic Control Program. And then also uh, in this last budget, uh, we in increased the amount of money, uh, doubled the amount of money that's in the uh, budget for the neighborhood traffic control program for 50, 000, from $50,000 every other year to $50,000 a year, which gives us a bit more money to implement some of these ideas. Um, so next slide, please. Uh, so we get a, the neighborhood traffic control program is, um, is not just about um, speeding um, in on streets. We get a lot, handle a lot of different requests through this program. We got a lot of different uh, signage requests, uh, uh, requests for curb paying due to conflicts with mailboxes or with um, uh, which we actually don't do painting around mailboxes anymore. So I should be clear about that. But another better example would be um, with with uh, near driveways to address uh, sight distance issues. Um, there's no the no parking mailbox sign authorizations where you know people in the community can do that. Um, and uh, then also sight distance evaluations. People concerned about visibility in intersections and making sure we're working with uh, adjacent uh, property owners to trim vegetation that is restricting site distance because that's a serious safety issue. Um, and then also looking at, in some cases, people um, parking in locations that restrict site distance, uh, dealing with streetlight requests, and then um, just uh, a, a number of other uh, requests that we get over time around signs and that type of thing. And then, of course, um, uh, concerns about speeding, which is one of the, you know, um, popular topics that we hear um, from people about too. So with this, I'm going to hand it over to uh, Victoria to talk about the details of the process. Great. So the policy changes that we're recommending is more specific to those speeding complaints. So I've included a flow chart here to when we get a resident request through our Kirkland, it could be routed to police for enforcement or um, targeted monitoring of an area, or it could be routed to public works. 
And when it is routed to us, we typically do a traffic study where we look at speeds and volumes and we leave out counters for a week. And based on the results of that study, we would either um, you know, do a small level of intervention, which could just be um, you know, education or signing or striping, or we may do a more involved signing and striping project uh, or further evaluation to do something like traffic circles or speed cushions. So the NTCP process for traffic calming in response to speed complaints is a phased approach, kind of what I just described, that starting at the low end of intervention that are lower costs, easier to implement measures, like deploying the portable speed radar trailer or doing 25 mile an hour pavement markings, moving up to phase two, where we might do permanent speed radar signs or painted curb extensions like the photo or um, phase three, where we might do traffic circles, uh, speed cushions, raised crosswalk, and the like. So again, the policy revisions are really more specific to that phase three, the highest level of intervention. Here's another great image from the archives that I've found uh, from the Norcook neighborhood. But essentially, the current policy, uh, it's in our roadway pre-approved plan, so the update would be an administrative update, but we wanted to present it to you because it does have a component of community outreach. And that outreach, um, there are three key components we wanted to highlight to you all. First is that it does require a very broad group of stakeholders, a broad community to engage. Uh, so if you were considering speed cushions, for example, you would engage not only the residents who live on the street of that um, proposed speed hump, but also on local streets that feed into the street, nearby residents in the neighborhood who might use it to reach other destinations, uh, as well as broader stakeholders like homeowners associations, uh, neighborhood associations, fire, police, uh, school, transit agencies, and businesses. Additionally, the engagement is more of an empower level of engagement. So it does require the neighborhood to form a task force that meets regularly to develop a traffic calming plan. And based on the level of community acceptance, that could be a few month process, it could be a year or longer process. And lastly, the community acceptance is a very high threshold. 70% uh, of the community has to approve a traffic calming measure. And that has done through ballots like this image here that's mailed out uh, to the neighborhood. So I've written this out in a flow chart of what the current process is. So first, the city would identify the area of influence of any traffic calming device, which does include several streets and uh, neighborhoods, as I just described. We would identify those stakeholders and create that community task force. The design would be developed with the task force over a regular period of time. Once the plan is ready, then that plan would be sent out to the community in a mailer. It typically required two weeks of comment period. The design would be refined, brought back to the task force, and then a ballot would be sent again with the refined plan. And if 70% of the community or greater accepted, uh, voted yes on the plan, it would be implemented. If less than that, 68%, it would be a no, and it would not be further pursued. 
So what we'd like to do is um, refine that engagement and streamline the process a bit so we can do more of these traffic calming measures. I think I noted in the memo the last time uh, traffic circle or speed hump has been implemented was in the early 2000s. So it's a, a tool we haven't used for a while, so we'd like to revisit it. Uh, we'd like to do a more focused group of stakeholders, still engaging those who live on the street or on the streets that feed into that street, as well as businesses on that street, uh, but not the broader neighborhood associations and homeowner so associations, unless we really heard um, really strong opposition to some particular device. Additionally, we'd like to take more of an approach um, as with any uh, capital improvement project where the city would be really more leading the design than a neighborhood task force. And we would do still direct outreach door-to-door uh, -door, probably for those immediately adjacent to a device as well as a mailer probably for those broader um, streets adjacent or feeding into that street in question. And lastly, we would like to remove the balloting process as we would still require engineering criteria and that would validate the need for doing a, a high level of engagement or a high level of intervention. So it really is more of a safety improvement than um, a, an optional thing that we're kind of asking the neighborhood to vote on. So that is this proposed engagement process flowchart. We would develop a conceptual design. We would still identify stakeholders and either do a door-to-door -door engagement or a mailer for broader outreach. We'd still allow time for comment. Um, we can refine the design in response to those comments. But really at that point, we wouldn't go back again with a balloting. It would be more, how do we implement this? And um, once it's ready to be implemented, then we would inform the neighborhood, just like we would with any capital project, the construction. And this is a comparison between the two processes. Um, with that, Joel, do you want to jump in on the engineering criteria? Sure. So um, wanted to just kind of outline some of the changes that we're making to this um, policy. Um, so we would be extending traffic calming to collector streets with a residential context. Um, we do have a, a varying degree of uh, streets that are labeled collectors, identified as collector streets in our functional classification map. For example, um, Waverly uh, in the Western Market neighborhood is a collector street. Um, and it's very different than some other streets that we would identify as collectors. So in those streets that feel more like neighborhood collectors, you know, in a residential neighborhood, um, feel like that it would be appropriate to look at those as potential for um, uh, implementing these types of devices, ultimately. Um, the maximum vehicle volumes, increasing that from 3,000 vehicles per day to 4,000. Um, we would be changing to uh, allow phase one and phase two measures, basically signing and striping uh, on streets that have um, at least a five mile per hour speeding. Currently that's, that's seven. Um, but uh, for phase three measures, we would still require 
that to be uh, exceeding the speed limit um, by seven miles per hour or greater, um, you know, this is just really trying to look at these as uh, not as a little less maybe as a as a community enhancement and involvement project and more as, um, you know, as we look at it, this from a safe, safe systems approach as when um, we have a average speed where people are, well, with speed where people are doing uh, 32 miles an hour, that's something that we need to, on a residential street that's marked as 25, that that's something we need to do something about. Um, we would uh, cons uh, consider um, with phase one and phase two measures, um, maybe considered for emergency vehicle routes, bus routes, routes with higher volumes. Um, uh, of long wheelbase vehicles like trucks and boat trailers, um, as because they don't, in, you know, impact, um, you know, in, put intrusions into the road, and we would um, do before and after studies would be required for phase three measures. Um, just we want to clarify that and make sure um, that that's clear because we want to make sure that we're learning for, from each of these and we're also making sure that we're not, um, there aren't any, you know, unintended consequences that we, that we um, need to address. And then, so for next steps, what we would be doing is this is a Minister of Policy, so um, based on uh, Council's uh, feedback, we would be updating uh, policy R20. Uh, we would also be updating the city's website. Victoria has that pretty much ready to go, so we can um, update the website and roll this out. And then the other thing is a public-facing web map. I'm not sure if any of you are familiar with the um, a pretty basic-looking spreadsheet that we've got on the website that shows where we've collected uh, speed and volume data historically. Uh, Victoria has been working on with... Um, uh, our GIs folks on a web map that would be much more intuitive and useful for people to find out, um, you know, find that information and, um, and that kind of thing. So um, that's where we are. And with that, we take any questions or comments. Okay. Somebody want to kick us Oh, off? and I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I interrupt, um, Mayor, but I did also want to note that I think this was highlighted in the memo, but I do like to, um, you know, recognize our commission, transportation commission and all their hard work. And they also um, supported, um, strongly supported this, uh, this policy change. Thank you very Sorry much, Joel. Uh, Councilmember Pascal. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Thanks, Joel. Thanks, Victoria. Uh, yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned the transportation commission because we don't want to forget about their work on, on these. So, you know, I really feel this is a timely update, uh, especially since we increased the budget uh, for the traffic, uh, traffic calming program as part of this last CIP update. So proud of that and uh, want to make sure that, that that money is well spent. And you know, kind of going back in history again, uh, one of the reasons I was excited about being annexed into the city uh, when I lived on Finn Hill was that Kirkland was really focused on uh, safe streets, slowing speeds through neighborhoods, both in street design and physical calming measures. But that was also at the same time that the program was disbanded. So it was, you know, it, it was tough to kind of have that sink in at the time. And ever since that, 
you know, it's been something that's been on my mind, and I know it has been with, with others, especially with uh, the formation of the Neighborhood Safety Program, and seeing how projects that would be discussed at that, during that program process, you know, related to traffic calming and slowing speeds, just never ranked against the crosswalk improvements and things like that um, as well. So, you know, it really kind of came to light that this program was still very necessary, but maybe we need to kind of think about it in, in different ways. Um, so I'm glad that we're looking at this. Uh, you know, that, that, that threshold for a ballot by the neighborhood, 70%, and going out there and, and having people vote, and then talking about, well, what should that study area be, you know? But if it's a street that a lot of people use, it's, you know, there's always that conflict about who do you ask, too? And uh, it just, it's, it's just a time-consuming process. You know, it made some people happy, made some people angry. Uh, I don't know, I've never really come across a process like that in other cities uh, to that degree. And so I think it's, it's clear that that has made it difficult to address speeding concerns uh, over time. And, and, and I think speeding concerns are safety concerns. And you know, I think I kind of see them one in the same, right? And so I wanna make sure with the adoption of Vision Zero and all our other supporting policies that that's the policy piece and now I would like to make sure staff have the ability to address those safety issues without an onerous process that basically doesn't allow anything to happen. Um, doesn't mean that we don't get public input. I think that's still very important, but when it's a safety issue and there's a, we, we need to come up with a solution. It might not always be a physical device, like you said, but I think, I think how you've crafted this and the changes you've made, I think make make a lot of sense. I think it would uh, be very worthwhile to try it and see, you know, uh, uh, where we end up. So uh, I just want to want to thank you for thinking through that. And uh, I'm excited to kind of see where this goes. Thank you. Councilmember Black. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Uh, well, I agree with um, almost everything that um, <coughs> Councilmember Pascal just said, probably everything, actually. I don't know why I why I had a disclaimer on there, but um, so I'll just uh, highlight a couple things. I do. Th I think it's a great idea um, to sort of. Um, I think it's modernized. Not is not quite the right word, but you know, examine this program. Is it working uh, for the city traffic department? Is it working for the people of the city of Kirkland? Um, and the fact that we haven't built any of these um, uh, physical interventions. It's, for almost 20 years um, is a sort of an interesting uh, piece of data. Um, so generally, I agree with this. I, uh, I like that, um, Joel, I think you used the term safe systems approach. I like that we're talking about a safe systems approach. I like that we're talking about a data-driven decision-making, um, engineer design by traffic engineers who are professionals in this area. Um, I like that there's still an opportunity for public input, but that it's sort of right-sized uh, for, and right-typed, I guess right-scoped for uh, the issue at hand. These are, uh, we're all experts on transportation. <laughs> uh, 
the Dunning-Kruger effect is always at its peak uh, when it comes to transportation design. Um, but it is highly technical. And so I do appreciate that we're getting input. We're going to, our engineers are going to be taking that input into consideration. Um, but at the end of the day, this is going to be a data-driven engineer design with safety at its, uh, as, at its focus. Um, I like that it increases the likelihood that we might actually implement some of these uh, traffic calming measures and these physical interventions uh, where it makes sense to do so. Um, and it's, you know, it's all focused on the stated goal the city has for, um, for greater safety on our streets, especially for our pedestrians and our bikers and whatnot. And so the last thing I would say, and I, I think uh, Councilmember Pascal mentioned this too, but I'll just reiterate, um, I'd really like to, you know, I'd like us to revisit this in a few years, in three, four, five years, and um, measure its impact, and measure the impact of this change and whether what we're seeing. So hopefully that'll just be a natural part of this, is that we'll, this council or a future council will hear back about what these changes have really meant um, and whether we're getting the results we uh, hoped. And if we're not getting the results we hoped, then we'll revisit it again. So thank you. Thank you. Councilmember Nixon. Uh, uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, I've been on the council over 11 years now. And I will admit that I never knew that under the Neighborhood Safety Program, a small minority of nearby residents had an actual veto over traffic calming measures. Um, which, as was just mentioned, they're designed decisions made by professionals based on industry best practices. It's not subjective. Um, and normally we think of 69 or 70 percent as not just a, a landslide, but a tidal wave, uh, overwhelming support. Um, um, you know, I suppose I have the excuse that I live in Kingsgate and we weren't even in the city yet at the time the program was previously discontinued. But, um, but it's still surprising to me. Um, and so I, I strongly support eliminating that veto uh, so that decisions can be made on the basis of safety and on doing the greatest good for the greatest number of people. And I support the rest of the proposal as well. Great. Uh, Deputy Mayor Arnold. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Uh, it's really interesting seeing where things go in 20 years, some blasts from the past, and that some of the things you've dug up from the archives, Victoria, Janet Pruitt, who was a Norkirk, uh, my neighborhood's uh, neighborhood chair for a while, and Tracy Burroughs is the traffic coordinator uh, at the time in that flare. Fun stuff. Uh, so I, I too, support. Uh, being more responsive and, and eliminating this process so we can do more to respond to neighborhood traffic safety concerns. One thing I am concerned about, page 47 of the packet, uh, illuminated the requirement of talking to the Neighborhood Association. And while I support the direct outreach to a number of uh, focused stakeholders that you outline, um, I, I do see the Neighborhood Associations as a very useful tool in getting the word out even getting the word out to those focused stakeholders. Uh, so uh, maybe if there is a step to notify those, not include them in that same level of direct outreach, but a, at least some notification to neighborhood associations and then school PTSA organizations, if a project is along a safe route to school, I think that'd be two sources for input. If you were going to go and do that notification, you may need to extend the comment period. Right now, you've got it as two weeks, and 
if those organizations are meeting on a monthly basis, like to be able to incorporate, give them a chance to get the word out so that you are um, able to get some public comment. Thank you. Any further comment? Well, good work, you two. Um, it, it is 20 years later, so uh, well done, uh, and we will see you later. With that, we're going to break and go into executive session. We will return at 7.30. are back in session following a study session on both a Lake Street South and Lake Washington Boulevard promenade and a concept development study and on neighborhood uh, traffic control program policy. Uh, this takes us to item number four, which is honors and proclamations. We start with a proclamation, the Black History Month proclamation. City Manager. Okay, thank you, Madam Mayor. So we will be declaring February as Black History Month in the city of Kirkland um, for all the many reasons that are articulated in the proclamation. I just wanted to add a few things. Um, this proclamation was updated this year by Erica Moscoro, who is our diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging manager. She wanted to be here tonight, but she is ill. A couple of things that she did in this proclamation is she included some um, wonderful links to resources for people to learn more about black history and also included some updates with our new equity roadmap and also some of the training that the city is doing um, in the area of black history. And finally, one of the things that she intended to say was that, you know, as other communities across the country are actually discussing banning the discussion of black history or the teaching of black history, it's more important than ever that we as a community can celebrate black history here in Kirkland. So um, in receiving the proclamation will be Ollie Garrett as a Kirkland resident and the president of CEO of Tabor 100 as well as the president and CEO of our own company, Payments Management Technology Solutions. And joining me to present the proclamation is Council Member Neil Black. And if you'll just come forward. Tonight I'll be reading a proclamation of the city of Kirkland recognizing February 2023 as Black History Month in Kirkland. Whereas Negro History Week was founded in 1926 by Dr. Carter G. Woodson, a noted American historian, author, journalist, and son of enslaved people of African descent. And whereas to encourage the study of black history and preserve and honor that legacy, Dr. Woodson selected the second week of February for this observance. And whereas this time of celebration and reflection was broadened to Black History Month at Kent State University in February of 1970 and nationally recognized in 1976 by President Gerald Ford during the United States Bicentennial. And whereas during Black History Month, we celebrate the extraordinary achievements and contributions made by black people to the social, artistic, cultural, political, economic, spiritual, and national advancement in the United States and beyond. And whereas to learn is our strongest tool against injustice, and it is our responsibility to prepare and empower every child in America, regardless of skin color, to learn the full and complete history of our nation. And whereas to understand racism and its impact to our social views and systems, 
we must know black history as black history is an integral part of the United States history. And whereas to highlight the histories of local black leaders, the city will commemorate the countless contributions to our region, our nation, and the world on social media platforms and to educate city staff. The city will hold staff training to build internal, personal, and interpersonal capacity to engage in conversations about racism by cultivating racial healing practices on February 25th, furthering objective 7.3 of the diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging roadmap. And whereas to learn more about the exceptional contributions of black Americans, Kirkland residents, students, and businesses may visit the National Museum of African American History and Culture website, which has virtual exhibitions, online collections, and an active blog of stories and articles. And whereas although we inherit incredible progress secured at the expense of centuries of toil, blood, sweat, and tears, we acknowledge that the long history toward justice is a difficult one to navigate and we must forever support change makers, become active participants in the liberation of all people and demand that leaders everywhere be held accountable. And whereas the city council has worked to demonstrate a deliberate and intentional effort centering the experiences and perspectives of black people through the adoption of resolution 5434, ensuring the, safe and res the, sorry, the safety and respect of black people and resolution 5548, approval of the diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging roadmap, while resolution 5240, declaring Kirkland a safe, inclusive and welcoming city supports the same intentional effort at ensuring the general well-being, inclusion, and belonging of black people and all people in Kirkland. Now, therefore, Mayor Penny Sweet, on behalf of the City Council, does hereby proclaim the month of February 2023 as Black History Month in Kirkland and asks all community members, public officials, librarians, and educators to join us in commemorating the countless contributions of black people to our region, our nation, and the world, as well as facing the reality of structural and institutional racism in our community. We encourage all Kirkland community members to join in conversation, both this month and every day. By coming together, we can create the beloved community envisioned by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Thank you. Your proclamation pretty much covered it all. Being a, a Kirkland resident since 1993 and feeling like walking down the street, I'm the only black person in Kirkland and seeing the progress and in meeting with different uh, people here and seeing that you're holding true to everything that we've discussed. It's an honor to have Kirkland recognizing Black History Month. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We are back now and we are at communications on our agenda. I took your glasses off. Here we go. This is the time on our meeting when we hear from the public on matters which are not scheduled for a quasi-judicial or other public hearing. We will be considering the Carillon Point Apartments Master Plan 
amendment later tonight for possible action. While that matter is quasi-judicial, the public hearing on that matter is closed. We have no other public hearings scheduled for this evening. Please limit your comments on all matters to three minutes. We ask that not more than three people speak on any one subject. However, if both proponents and opponents wish to speak, then up to three proponents and up to three opponents may address the council. If you are present either in person or virtually and would like to address the council during this items from the audience period, please sign up using the online public comment instruction link or in person using the posted QR code. For those participating by phone, please dial star nine to be recognized to speak. Community members will be called upon in a order in which they signed up. Items from the audience is an important part of our business meeting and we ask that everyone be treated with kindness and respect. We ask that you please do not clap or applaud after a speaker or that you express your disagreement with a speaker. We want everyone in Kirkland to feel welcome expressing their viewpoints regardless of content. City Clerk, who have we got lined up? Our first two speakers are virtual, and the first one is Emily Betancourt, followed by Corey Walters. After that will be Mason Burns. on the timer. Um, Ms. Beckencourt. Hi. Hi. Um, thank you for having me and letting me speak today. Um, I would like to discuss uh, the um, Lake Washington Boulevard uh, plans that you guys have. I wanted to first start off by saying uh, thank you guys so much for um, improving and, how, and putting forward really detailed uh, plans to improve the safety of Lake Washington Boulevard for cyclists and um, pedestrians. Um, I'm here today because um, I, uh, I love to cycle on, along that route. I use it for uh, commuting as well as uh, just recreational uh, cycling use. And um, I think that your plan is currently missing um, a really important intersection. And that intersection is the um, Lake Boulevard and Lakeview, um, specifically when you're going north and the bike lane has to cross the Lakeview Drive uh, right turn lane. Um, uh, recently, I almost got hit by a car there while I was on my bike and it was a very jarring experience. And I think that if the goal of Kirkland is to um, improve um, and, and really invest in improving Lake Washington Boulevard. I think to forget this key intersection that you have to take to get there, especially from the 520 trail, um, would be a huge miss and kind of undermine the, the entire goal of the project. Um, so I guess my uh, ask for today is to consider um, either adding a redesign of the Lakeview Washington um, like intersection or add it to a separate project um, because I think that the design itself of the intersection um, is the problem and that um, it allows uh, for accidents to happen um, and yeah uh, basically gives very little ability 
for the drivers uh, to give the bikes to the right-of-way. I also wanted to point out the signage that does say uh, that bikes have the right-of-way is often uh, covered by leaves. <laughs> so if we could even at the very least get the, um, the, the, the bushes cut back so that signage is more clear, um, I think could be an even a small improvement to help uh, prevent accidents um, such as the one that I was almost involved in. So um, that's all I had to say today. So thank you guys. Thank you, Ms. Bittencourt. Next speaker is Corey Walters, also virtual. Followed by Mason Burns. Um, can you hear me? Am yes, I... Ms. Walters, welcome. Great, thank you. Um, Madam Mayor and Kirkland City Council, I'm, I'm Corey Walters and would just like to take a minute and introduce myself. I'm the new executive director with the Kirkland Parks and Community Foundation. And it's such a treat to have the opportunity to work for the foundation and the awesome board that has been around for about eight years together, making um, really great things happen in the city of Kirkland. And um, to be in Kirkland and to get to know the city, and I've had an opportunity to meet with a couple city council members and had really great discussions about what's happening in Kirkland and what the future of Kirkland might look like. And just really grateful to be here. Um, and the whole um, Kirkland Parks and Community Foundation organization wanted to send out a thank you to city council and to the city for supporting us through our capacity building campaign. And um, we wouldn't have an executive director today if, if we didn't have all the community support that we've received in the last couple of years. So thank you so much for that. Um, as the foundation grows and changes and um, starts incorporating new fundraising and grant providing opportunities to our local nonprofits, we look forward to building a deeper connection with the, the city and the council and, um, and our entire community. So thank you. And um, I don't really have much more to say than that other than I'm excited to be here. I look forward to meeting with all of you one-on-one uh, -on -one at some point in time in the near future. Thank you, Ms. Walters. We look forward to that as well. Thank you. Our next speaker is in the chamber, Mason Burns, followed by Scott Brady and Alex Zimmerman. Welcome, Ms. Burns. And I had a PowerPoint that went along with mine as well. Dog Park. Hello, my name is Mason. I've been a Kirkland resident for 26 years. Over the past few months, myself and other folks I've met through the Snyder's Corner Dog Park have been sharing about the gift of connection and community and what we've found with one another through the pop-up dog park. While we recognize that the newness comes with some adjustments, today we just wanted to make sure that we expressed our gratitude to the City Parks Department, City Council, and the city as a whole for returning the park. We know that building bridges and larger connections takes breath, lots of listening, kindness, and patience as we find strategies and solutions that support everyone's needs. And we have our sleeves rolled up to do this work. 
We asked our dogs how they felt about the support and their feelings, and they were overwhelmingly positive. So we wanted to share some of their thoughts with you. We didn't bring them in, but I brought some pictures. Should just kind of go through. <laughs> so these were all taken just within the past couple days as well. So it's definitely getting its fair share of use. Uh, just again, we wanted to thank you for bringing a place to South Kirkland where we can gather and our dogs can calculate how many balls they can fit in their mouths, how many dogs are required to carry one large stick and to take a power nap in the middle of the park. We're all grateful for the connections that you have all created for both the dogs and the people of Kirkland. Thank you so much. Thank you. Our next speaker is Scott Brady, followed by Alex Zimmerman, then Noel Knappett and Wendy Stewart. Welcome, Mr. Brady. Thank you. One moment, sorry. Good evening, council members. It's really a privilege to see you all face to face. And I'd want to say that for once, I'm not here to talk about my nuisance burning neighbor. Thank you for all the work you've done on that. It's coming along very nicely. I'm here instead to speak tonight about some ongoing traffic issues where I have concerns. It could be an issue where I'm simply uneducated, or it could be an issue where I'm just too old. Uh, the average age of our residents here in the city of Kirkland is apparently, as of right now, 37.4 years, which means that the age of all the roads in the city of Kirkland is about twice to three times the age of the average resident, which is great because it means that we've done a pretty good job, even after annexation, uh, coming up with ways to maintain those roads. I will say, however, that the way that we're approaching speeding and traffic calming is not what I would consider to be the best. And again, could come down to individual education. Where I have to go with this, unfortunately, is when I see comments like this, and I'm gonna read this aloud because it was a bit strange to me, and it was in response to someone saying that they felt like their neighbors were speeding. The comment reads, there are many studies that show the biggest offenders of speeding are your neighbors. Like you, I also work extra hard to watch my speed through neighborhoods. I wish everyone did, However, many of our streets were built extra wide, and many people don't realize how fast they're going. A comment like that is not necessarily a bad thing. You might wonder, well, what kind of person might write that? The person sitting among you. It's not a bad thing that they have their opinion, but I will say it's a bit strange that someone could have an opinion like that, knowing that the roads might not be too wide as they are, as they have been around for, say, 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 years. What's changed to make our roads less safe is driver behavior. And what drives driver behavior, quite frankly, is enforcement of law. There's no doubt in my mind, and I think in the minds of many, that when you say to an individual, you will get a ticket for that burnt out headlight, you will get a ticket for that burnt out taillight, a policeman will pull you over, you'll be issued a citation, it'll make your everything more expensive for you. You will be motivated by the sound of your neighbor screeching at the top of their lungs at the mailbox about that ticket. You'll go out and fix your car. It's like the same with speeding, with running stop signs. I've seen stop signs being put in places where just yesterday I almost got T-boned by the same people running the stop sign before that stop sign got put in, um, in opposite directions. I get slowed down by new stop lights and revisions that are put in, it's not great. And I see buses and emergency vehicles and large trucks. I own a pickup truck myself. I have this problem where my uh, mirrors are over the lines. But I see larger vehicles like buses driving with a white line down the center when I go to places, other cities, 
that have also narrowed the roads too much and have approached traffic calming in ways that don't make sense. Too many odd jogs and things like that. Mr. Brady, I'm sorry, but your oh. time is up. Perfect. Thank you very you much would, for your time. If you would like to, feel, please feel free to send your comments in writing. Will do. Thank you, Mayor. The next speaker is Alex Zimmerman, followed by Noel Knappett and Wendy Stewart. Welcome, Mr. Zimmerman. Ah, Zee Kyle. Where is timer? In front of you. Here? Yes. Oh, okay. Zee Kyle, my dirty dem Nazi Gestapo democracy fascist, a crook, mafia, and psychopath. My name is Alex Zimmerman, and uh, I president of Stand Up America, and I try to go for election. Yeah, again. Guys, can you stop and acting like a cretina? My question is very simple. I cannot see this for a very long time. Somebody sit in the toilet, have a pleasure, have telephone, have a pleasure, speak this, you know what this means, and everybody happy. I'm not happy. I drive, I spend time, I'm here with a dozen people, if we have something second-class citizen. What is BS this? This number one. Number two, I want to speak about housing. Last time you don't give me this chance, so right now I have two minutes for speak for my housing. Guys, you are a criminal, you are a bandita, and you are a killer. And I explained to you why. For many years, we don't fix this problem. For many years, we have control by Democrat mafia in Seattle, in Kirkland, in King County, in state Washington. Why? I have my website, alexforamerica.com, and many years ago I bring very simple question, you know what this means, how we can fix this problem. It's very easy, and nobody doing this. Why? My proposition is simple, you know what this means, and you have very good example from Section 8, you know what this means, because my mom in Section 8 for many years, I know this business like my five finger. 50 percentage people who make less than $50,000, post to be have same rules like half Section 8, pay 30 percentage as standard American. Where is the problem? Why we need to spend for sound transit $100 billion? You cannot bring 250,000 people who are in totally deep hole right now with housing and everybody happy. How you can be happy? I'm not happy. Who's freaking idiot? who cannot make simple decision. I live this story five years. Here country have good rules before, but for the last 20 years, you totally disappear everything because by definition, you are bandito. You understand what is I talking about? Is this very important? This is very simple. Last time you make this decision, stupid rules are pure masturbation. Probably no, nobody knows how working, but this look good for you. You're doing something for the people. You're not doing nothing. This is exactly what's happened. 50% people who make almost less than $50,000 post to believe in normal situation, 30% that's it. Is this not too much need money for support them? Thank you, Mr. Zimmerman. Oh, red? Yep. I don't like red color. Thank you very much. Our next speaker stepped out for a moment, so our next speaker will be Wendy Stewart, and she is virtual. Hear me? Uh, yes, Mr. Uh, yes, Mr. 
Hi, I very much apologize. I signed up last week, actually, when you gave us the Snyder's Corner Dog Park um, Speak and Listen session because I wanted to thank you. So I apologize that I came through to the city council meeting, but I think Mason did a fantastic job of thanking you. Thank you. Our next speaker is Noel Knappett, and I'm not sure if he's back in. Is this Noel? Hi, Noel. Step right up to the podium. Let me introduce myself. My name's Noel Knappett. I moved here in 1967. Went to Lakeville Elementary School, Kirkland Junior High, Lake Washington High School, Washington State University. I live in Houghton. I live three doors down from Mr. Bob Neer and I live a mile and a half from the home I grew up on the lake. And I've got a lot of stuff going on with my head right now, and I'm very anxious, and I'm not, um, my, my, my demeanor right now isn't my normal demeanor. Um, I'm actually a really nice guy, but really, really upset with what's going on in our town here in Kirkland. Okay, there's, I, just, I need more than three minutes, but I know I got three minutes. So it's just, I met with Kurt, and uh, some stuff that he informed me of was just not true. But let's start with from the beginning. Let's go from the biggest concerns of mine is the traffic impact and the road improvements. Let me give you an example. Uh, watching the news the last couple nights, um, um, uh, the town out there in the south where they put the airport, they said, no, we can't, I can't think of it right now, excuse me. Um, they said, no, we don't have the infrastructure. We don't have the road improvements. So what you guys are doing here is you're building all these buildings here with no road improvements, no tenant improvements. Give you a couple examples. Northeast uh, uh, Kirkland, uh, the urban center. You put a right-hand turn lane in there. Oh, oh, it comes back a year later. Uh, the right-hand turn lanes need to go in early, okay? And the builders and the contractors and the developers need to, to improve the roads. And if you want to build a five-story building up on Rose Hill or the bowling alley or the old Waldo's Tavern, the Petco, let's put some right-hand turns in. Talk to Kurt on 132nd Northeast 85th where the churches are. Um, oh, there's going to be a right-hand turn lane going, going uh, west on Northeast 85th. Not, no, there's not. And I've been living here for a long time. That intersection right there has always been an issue. Even with the churches, we used to be more impactful. They don't have quite the, um, uh, the, 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 uh, the people going there. But we wait 15 minutes to get through that intersection on a Sunday morning. And then Kurt informs me that the engineer, I got my notes here, I'm not gonna get in details, doesn't think there was a need for to having a right-hand turn lane. So there's several buildings going up here that uh, need to have right-hand turn lanes. You need to halt the developers and say, no, we need to, we're changing our plan. We need to make some infrastructure and some road improvements on these roads because there's a lot of traffic impact. Okay, so I live in Houghton, and I go to, it takes me, I go to 1.1 miles to downtown Kirkland. I leave at 4.30, it takes me 22 minutes to get there. You go up to my intersection on Northeast 70th by the Metropolitan Market. Thank you, Mr. Yep, Nafford, I'm yep, sorry your yep. time is up. Ridiculous, I'm not even done. That is the last speaker that we have signed up. Okay, thank you. Is there anyone else out there who has not addressed the council yet, yet would like to? 
Seeing none, I declare this items from the audience period closed. I hear you. Cannot hear you. Um, okay, so that takes us to the next section, which is special presentations. The Houghton Village near-term strategy. <clears throat> City Manager. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. So this uh, special presentation is to provide some background on um, some options we want to discuss with the City Council about near-term uses of Houghton Village and particularly the uh, former PCC site. I'm here to walk you through that presentation. Those options is Beth Goldberg, our Deputy City Manager for Operations. Good evening, everyone. We'll see if I can figure out how to get this to work. Okay, good evening, uh, Madam Mayor and Council Members. I am here tonight to uh, present some options for near-term strategies for, um, for the PCC space at, the, at Houghton Village. So uh, you all will recall that uh, we purchased the Houghton Village Shopping Center in um, May of 2022 with uh, the goal of redeveloping the property um, long-term goal of redeveloping the property into mixed-use affordable housing. Um, but the short-term goal, um, until it takes, until we're ready to do that redevelopment, was to find a way to activate um, the, the, the site, with the former PCC space, um, because it has reduced uh, foot traffic um, to, to the shopping center. And the, the idea had been to find a community arts nonprofit that could provide community benefits to occupy the space. Um, so that was the vision. Um, and the challenge that we have identified since then is that the cost and timeline to complete the upgrades are more significant than uh, we had anticipated. Uh, the condition of the space is um, uh, needs attention, and um, all of this requires a change of use um, that uh, ratchets up. Should I pause here, maybe, or do you want me to keep going? No, I think you should continue. keep going. Okay, um, so sorry. <laughs> um, so, uh, in all of these, uh, many of these changes that I'm going to talk about here tonight require a change of use, which triggers um, code uh, upgrades to the facility. So uh, to ground everyone of what the inside of um, the former PCC space looks like, um, here are a few pictures. Um, you can uh, see where the shell, the store shelves used to be, and um, there are parts of the floor that, um, that need attention, the walls need attention, things of that nature. So we considered uh, five options um, as we, we had this, this long-term goal in mind. And um, the main underlying issue is that the building is currently um, designated as mercantile use. And if you kept it as a mercantile um, property, it would not trigger 
um, additional code requirements, but it would cause um, or it would require some um, uh, TLC to address the floor images that you saw, the, the walls, things of that nature. So preliminary estimates, although we do think there are opportunities to bring the cost down, if we wanted to retain the space as mercantile use, would be as much as $300,000. Um, the the uh, challenge with this option is that we don't have um, a tenant currently identified. So we know we want to activate the space, but um, to activate the space, you need to create a, a suitable shell for someone to move into that costs money. But in this case, we might find a tenant, but we, we might not. Um, the other option we looked at is do you change the use from mercantile to business use? This would trigger more, um, more upgrade uh, requirements that could cost as much as $750,000. Again, there may be opportunities to bring this down, but that's, that's the early assessment. And the type of um, establishments that could then go into the space would be um, professional office space, um, some uh, potentially some educational or ambulatory care facilities, as um, is the case with the mercantile use. We don't, as of now, have um, a tenant lined up. The third option um, is to change the use from mercantile to assembly use, um, and that would that would be the usage that would be required to accommodate uh, a, a nonprofit, as we had had set out um, as the goal when we purchased the property. Um, this requires. Um, more extensive um, upgrades to the building, namely because there's more bathroom requirements that need to be met. So the cost for option three is about $850,000. Uh, this option, as opposed to the other options, we do have um, a potential tenant um, uh, or tenants um, that that we believe may be interested in occupying the space if we made these upgrades. One other thing that I should point out in all of this is that the upgrades that I'm describing here would be to create a usable shell. Um, the, the tenant that is actually going in, regardless of, of the category, would like to likely need to make additional tenant improvements to um, customize the space for um, their, particular, their particular needs. So the other two options that we considered is um, to leave the space as is. This would be the least expensive option uh, because it would not require any upgrades, but it does also mean that the space would likely remain vacant because of um, the images that you saw earlier in the presentation. And this would result in continued um, reduced foot traffic to the area that is, is cause for concern of the businesses that remain there. Um, so um, that, that would be the downside of this option. And then the fifth option um, that we're offering up today, although this requires probably more research than all of the options um, we've previously discussed, would be to demolish the PCC portion of, of the property and identify a, an open space use for, for the vacant space that would remain after 
the, the building was demolished, the PCC portion of the building was demolished. Um, the, the advantage of this, this option um, would be that at the time that we redevelop the property, we're going to have to demolish the buildings anyway, so this would be getting a leg up. But um, as with option four, probably not doing a lot to help um, with, with the foot traffic that is desired for uh, the space. Um, in terms of financial considerations, um, there's really a, a bit of a push-pull here with um, the knowing the cost to make the upgrades necessary to get, get a tenant into the space versus the investment and how do we how do we pay for that? So um, we have identified a couple of um, initial funding sources that we could choose to deploy if, if that was the council's direction. Uh, first is that the biennial budget did include 250,000 for Houghton Village costs related to you know, unexpected repairs that might come up such as you know, portions of the roof need to be replaced or HVAC system needs to be addressed. So there is that 250,000 that is already appropriated for, for Houghton Village. Uh, the downside of drawing upon that now is if something unexpected happens to the building, then we would need we would need to find another funding source to address those. Um, we could also look at REIT reserves, but um, there's also many, many ideas for those REIT reserves. And given what's going on with the real estate market, um, REIT levels are, are um, maybe not going to be as robust um, this year as they might be in the future. So that's one option. Um, the other option is we estimate collecting 366,000, or excuse me, 366,000 in unallocated rent revenues um, through mid-2025. So right now we've got the tenants on two-year, two-plus-year leases, um, which would have them remain until June 2025, which is the earliest we would anticipate redeveloping the property. That uh, lease revenue is not currently designated for any purpose, so we could we could direct it towards uh, the cost of the upgrades. Um, and then the 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 last option that we have for you here today would be to deploy future lease revenues if we were able to get a tenant into the PCC space. Um, this is speculative um, because two of the options we don't necessarily have tenants lined up. The third option, which would be the assembly use for a, a nonprofit organization, would likely not be paying market rate uh, rents. So what we've cited here is an amount that the city could collect if we were able to identify um, a new occupant that was paying <clears throat> roughly market or close to market rates, and that would be about 168 to 216,000 per year. Um, but as I said, this could be substantially less. If we go uh, the nonprofit route and the assembly usage, which is the most expensive upgrades, it is likely that the occupant would not be, would be paying well below market rate rent. Um, the city's practice has been just to charge O&M, not, not rent, um, but that's something that we could, we could re-examine um, as we're weighing is we're weighing these different options. So um, 
to, uh, to summarize, um, we've laid out um, five options for you. Uh, we are looking for direction on council's preferred option. Um, as we weigh these, these various um, options, staff does recommend that we um, proceed with doing further analysis of option three and returning to the council in March with a proposal. And that further analysis would include um, uh, collecting more information on um, the estimated costs of the upgrades. Again, preliminary estimates are $850,000, but we think we could bring that down. Um, also do some further exploration of whether, in fact, we could get a tenant in there as we anticipate and what that tenant um, may be able to pay um, in terms of rent and how that might um, offset the upgrade costs. And so our recommendation is, if, if the council agrees, would be to do some more work, dig into option three a little bit more, return in March with a proposal for, um, for you all to consider. So with that, can open it up for questions and discussion. Thank you, Beth. Uh, Councilmember Nixon. <clears throat> Thank you, Beth. Um, so when we entered into this transaction, uh, I believe our intent was that the rental income would cover at least the interest on the interfund loan. And is that happening? Like when you talk about the 366K as being net, is that net of that interest or is that interest coming out of that 366K? We, my recollection of, of the discussion of when the purchase was approved was that we were going to identify a, a partner to help redevelop the property and develop a long-term financing plan that would defease the loan as well as the interest. We did suggest that the rent could be used to offset some of that. Um, I don't recall that we said it would definitively cover those costs, but it was a tool that we mentioned. So, of course, if we used this rent revenue that I cited um, previously, it would not be available to defease those costs, but um, we would be fairly confident that a developer could, you know, if we identified the developer to redevelop the property, that they would be able to cover that as well as um, helping um, come up with a, finan a financing plan to pay off the entire loan. When, when you, so when you say the 366K is net, you mean net above operating and maintenance costs? Correct. Okay, Correct. not the interest. Um, thank you. So um, I grew up in Northern California, and in, in our area, there were a lot of what we called flea markets. Anybody ever been to a flea market? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it would be kind of a just an ongoing operation where you had tables or booths uh, for arts and crafts, and uh, my dad used to go out to garage sales at the end of the day and buy up the boxes of leftover stuff for a quarter and then take it to the flea market and sell up the flea market for a quarter for each item, right? It was quite a scheme. Um, and, you know, I, th I think there's a lot of people in the community that might enjoy having something like that. Um, if, if we wanted to do something like that, 
and kind of an ongoing arts crafts, would that fit within the existing zoning, the mercantile? It would. That, that we believe, a, a flea market, a, a farmer's market, um, we believe would fit within the mercantile uh, usage, the current mercantile usage. So that 300,000-ish investment that, uh, that I described would be the path. What is, is not known, and I've got our property manager researching this, is how much um, rent you know, is is market rate something that a, f a farmer's market, a flea market may be willing to pay? Because I, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I guess I'm a little skeptical that something like that would be able to, to pay what, you know, a retail, a grocery store might be willing to pay. No. So, so I'm thinking of it, something that would be an interim temporary use while we try to get uh, a market rate tenant. Okay. But, I mean, our... I see our short-term desire is just to get more people coming there to patronize the businesses that surround it. And to me, this seems like at least one idea that could be set up pretty quickly, um, you know, assuming we worked out the insurance liability issues and all those other things. Um, uh, to me, um, I would not even consider the option of uh, demol demolishing the building prematurely if we had even this kind of simple benefit to the community that, that we could have. Um, um, so I, I'll say I'm, I'm supportive of, at the very least, doing option one, just make the building functional, fix the bathrooms, deal with the, the, the flooring, um, HVAC up, uh, updates, you know, if it's just to get, make it functional, at least during the winter. Um, and, and let's figure out something we can do that benefits the community, even if it's not a huge moneymaker. I I, my recollection is we didn't really expect to make a lot of money off this. We hoped to break even. Um, but I'm also open to looking at option three. I would really like to see what the cost would be to um, make it into an assembly space uh, for one of our performing arts nonprofits or something like that, and also not only what the cost would be, but what the funding options would be. So I, I'm very supportive of going ahead with those explorations. Thank you. Thank you. Councilmember Curtis. <clears throat> Thank you, Madam Mayor. And while we're sharing, Councilmember Nixon, I'd take this space and turn it into a nursery. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to quit city council and I'm going to start a business. No, yeah. that would be a dream of mine. So, um, I don't want. I also don't want to see this property vacant, and um, especially over the next two years. So we need to invest in the upgrades to make sure that we add value to the community. But what I'm not clear on, I need more information. So I'm looking for when you come back in March. Not only all these things are in my head. We don't know what the construction cost will be on each of the three options, because I'm assuming the construction cost and the timeline will vary based on the options. The estimate you threw out was six to 18 months, but I would assume option one would be a shorter time frame than option three. So the question is, what's the timeline on each option? What can we rent each option for? And then also, when we look at the timeline, you know, we talked about, we talk about that we want someone in this property 2025,
But realistically, it's not going to happen in 2000. It will be a miracle in that we have to do a master plan process, which requires a public hearing, which goes through design review board and so forth. So I'd like to see this spread out over what's someone is going to rent this based on how long they think they're going to be there. So we need to be uh, realistic with the future occupant on if it's a two-year time frame or a four-year time frame. So I, I need all of that information before I can make a recommendation. Right now, I'm leaning toward option three because I'm gonna, I believe that will give us the highest, highest rate of return, but I'd like to know what we would be charging for rent and what would it cost us to do the contracting. Um, option five was unexpected and intrigues me because we're always looking for parks open space. So is it, is the property in the con kind of condition if we were to demo the building to put pickleball courts or tennis ball or tennis courts or a skate park or so I would like to hear from um, parks and community services how we could activate this space and that might be also beneficial for the community and the residents. Um, so I, I need more information um, before I can make a recommendation. Um, and then, you know, it's too early to start talking about the master plan process, but that's also what we need to start thinking about when we do this. Um, we did receive an email from a neighbor in the Houghton area talking about the 6-3 corridor study and the HENC. So when we do this master plan process, is it just for this property, or do we are we required to do the master plan process for the whole HENC? Uh, because when we went through that process, we talked about curb cuts and, and driveway conflicts. And so there's a lot of unknowns and complications, and we need to answer some of those questions before I can make a recommendation. Thank you. Thank you. Deputy Mayor Arnold. Thank you, Madam Mayor. I agree with parts of what um, Councilmember Curtis has said and Councilmember Nixon has said about wanting to move to help use the site uh, now to help support the neighborhood center and to build foot traffic and continue to support the neighborhood businesses there. But I also want the use that we do in the near term to reflect where we're going with the master plan over the long term. Um, I, I think that we um, have, let me back up. We talked a little bit about the retreat about visions of wanting to build housing on this site, and also support community nonprofits, um, uh, and talked about things like the Together Center for in Redmond as a model. Having nonprofits anchoring Houghton Village this year provides an illustration of that model for the community and future development partners as we think about a master plan and our vision and that redevelopment. If we go off in a different direction, like you were suggesting, Councilmember Curtis, with open space or recreation space, then we're changing that over the long term. And I'd rather go in the same strategic direction. So I'm willing to support the um, investment in option three to bring the standards to an assembly use. Um, if we can work out the details with potential tenants. And I know there's a lot of complicated moving parts here, but would like to... Um, see if we can get to a point where we think uh, we know those details of what that would look like, uh, the timing, the cost, and the options to finance it. Thanks. Thank you. Councilmember Faskell. Thank you, Madam Mayor. 
So I still have, a, like the other colleagues, just some more questions. So just a couple ones, so just to clarify, Beth. So are we working with an outside commercial broker on you know, advertising the property and, and talking about potential tenants? And yes. Okay. So we, we have um, a, a property manager under contract that is managing the property for us, current tenants, and also um, looking for additional tenants. Um, just recently had success. Another uh, vacant portion of the building was Suite D in the, in the Western building. And um, the property manager was successful in identifying and getting a new tenant into that space, a martial arts um, mm. outfit into Suite D. Um, there have been periodic inquiries on this space, but nothing as of yet particularly serious. Um, yeah. Okay, that clears. I, I, I didn't understand whether or not the property manager was kind of internal to the city or was an external. External. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, I, I'd just say that, I mean, what concerns me is that putting more money towards this that you know, is money that's, um, uh, is it for a short-term fix, right? Um, doesn't necessarily get to the long-term investment that, that we want to see. Um, but I think what would be most helpful for me is to kind of see the timeline, like in an illustration of, of when, you, when you actually kind of got a permit to, to go and make the investments to when, uh, when a tenant would be there come in, how long they'd be there for, then when, you know, and, and then how the planning and the master planning would kind of coincide with that, just to kind of get a better sense of, of how, uh, how it would all work out um, and see it visually, I think would be helpful. Uh, you know, I, I'm interested in, in, in understanding other ways to activate the space. I just, it's, it's hard to, to kind of go along with the, the 850000 and and know that that's maybe money that's only being used for two years or so, when there's probably lots of other ways we could use that money um, for the benefit of the community. That's that's what I'm struggling with. Thanks. Thank you. Councilmember Black. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. Uh, I don't have much to add to what um, my colleagues have already said. I did, um, I guess it's worth saying perhaps that you know, I don't see a big difference between, for example, I think the reason we're not really talking about option two is it's it's difficult to imagine spending 750 or something in that neighborhood and not spending another 100,000 uh, on a potential uh, solution that, um, you know, could introduce um, a likely tenant. I, I liked what um, Deputy Mayor Arnold was saying about sort of maintaining a strategic direction um, I also liked what Councilmember Nixon said about, um, not to put words in anyone's mouth, but that we don't really need to make money um, at this on this near-term stage. I think just activating the space, and um, which will help support uh, the businesses that are located there who are right now the city's tenants. Um, and so, um, you know, we really... Just just that benefit alone is sort of an intangible benefit that you can't really quantify on the bottom line of a spreadsheet, but um, that alone is meaningful to me. And then, of course, if we can get um, community benefit, um, then that's also extremely meaningful. 
Um, one, I guess, detailed question. Um, when I look at that um, property and I think about it in near term, and I think about some of the, um, we do have a large employer uh, nearby. Um, I don't know how, <laughs> speaking of activated, I don't know how activated their space is right now with employees every day, but um, there are a pretty healthy number of employees. I was thinking about um, activating that space in ways related around food. And that got me thinking about uh, food truck malls um, mm -hmm. and thinking about sort of a miniature version of that. And would that be compatible? And then I got to thinking about whether that would be compatible with some of these. It, it doesn't have to be exclusively uh, identified as a food truck mall, but that could be part of a near-term solution. It could, it could be, I can kind of envision two or three or four food truck stalls along with um, the uh, nonprofit uh, cultural arts uh, uses. Um, I have no idea whether food trucks make money for the landowners who uh, permit them. I suspect it's not much of a moneymaker. Um, but I'd be curious to hear more about that. And so I guess to sort of uh, strike uh, um, the same note that a lot of my council members and I think the staff's aware of this. You know, there's just a lot more analysis that needs to be done, and we need more information. But I think staff agrees. Um, but I definitely think uh, it's. It, I, I'm. You know, I'm. I came into this discussion with a thinking um, uh, three only if there's some real likelihood that we could really activate the state space in a way that's really beneficial to the uh, community. Uh, it doesn't have to necessarily make money, uh, but it could break even and be a great benefit to the community and the, the and the uh, business owners there who are tenants. Um, but otherwise, we're probably you know looking at um, a much smaller investment. But what I don't want, I think Councilmember Curtis says that what I don't want is an empty space. And I, I'm guessing that's consensus view by everyone on the council and in the staff that we don't want to see the space not activated in some manner. So. Thanks. That's really all I had to say. Can I ask a question about when you say break even? Um, oh. Are are is is it break even with the cost of the investment to upgrade the space, or is it is it cost to operate and maintain the space? Um, and I'm I'm asking the question because. Um, the the investment that we estimate currently, um, and again we hope to bring it down um, for the assembly use would be eight hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And if you assume um, a two year horizon, which you know may be extended, maybe not, but conservatively two years, um, that would be more than um, the the market rate, which a nonprofit, so that that would be, and and don't necessarily need an answer tonight, but that that would be, uh, you know, that's something that staff is thinking about, and I'm sure will be when we come back with more numbers, um, something that you all will want to dig into. So yeah. I guess it's a question, but also planting a seed to a certain extent. Yeah, no, that's fine. That's great. Um, I think when I was talking about breaking, but I was really focused on. If we made the some of the space available to food trucks, cost of electrical hookup, cost of additional okay. insurance, just really the 
whether it makes whether food trucks are willing to pay for permitted parking sufficient to cover our costs are just an incrementally additional cost of allowing them to be uh, on the on the property. That's really what I was talking about there. Nothing related to covering the cost okay. of the capital investment. No. Excellent. Thank you. Yep. Thank you. I just think we threw a whole bowl of spaghetti on a wall. <laughs> <laughs> and there are noodles everywhere. Um, so I'm not going to add a whole lot. I, I, I agree with, I think, some of the, the, the heart of what I'm hearing my, my fellow council members say. The nursery is the best idea out there. But, because, um, boy, I tell nurseries go crazy with people. Anyway, activate it. Um, let's get clearer on what the costs are going to be and what it's going to take. Um, and we don't have to rush this conversation, but um, I, I think we just need more information before we move forward with it. And with that, thank you very much. Do you have anything else you need? No, I just, you might find this interesting. So Michael Olson, our finance director, texted me um, from the good old days, the, the interest payment we make is at 1.1%. <laughs> and... <laughs> Uh, be four hundred seventy-four thousand dollars approximately at, the, at due at the end of the third year. So, mm -hmm. uh, but no. Otherwise, thank you for the conversation. All right, great. And thank you, Beth. Uh, with that, that takes us to item eight, our consent calendar. Before we have a motion, I'd like to ask Deputy Mayor Arnold for an audit of the accounts. Thank you, Madam Mayor. We had payroll in the amount of five million two hundred seventy-one thousand two hundred forty dollars and seventy-two cents and bills in the amount of $13,088,125.23. The bills include our annual $3.14 million payment to WCIA for insurance, also coming at the same time as some monthly utility, uh, NORCOM, and capital project construction invoices. Thank you. Okay, can I get a motion to approve the consent calendar? So moved. Moved by Council Member Black. Second. Seconded by Council Member Curtis. Any discussion? Question is on the motion to approve the consent calendar. Moved by Council Member Black. Seconded by Council Member Curtis. All those in favor? Okay. All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Motion carries. Takes us to our business agenda, item number nine. Um, the first item of business is the Carolyn Point. Apartments Master Plan Amendment. Amendment. This matter is quasi, a quasi-judicial matter, but the public hearing on this matter was closed at our last meeting. Before considering possible action on this matter, though, is there any member of the council who wishes to share any potential conflict of interest or appearance of fairness concerns? Seeing head nods, okay. I will call on the city manager. Okay. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. So to make the presentation before your potential decision is our planning supervisor, Nick Salufil, and associate planner, Jennifer Anderer. Hi, Nick. Jennifer. <laughs> Hello. Let me share my screen. Um, it says it won't let me. Um, it's still being shared oh. from the previous presentation. Sorry, we'll fix that. No problem. Thank you, Nick. Okay. One second.
Okay. Can you see the intro slide of the PowerPoint? We got it. Never can hear me? Perfect. All right. Um, thank you, Mary Sweet, Mayor Sweet, um, Deputy Mayor Arnold, and Council members. We are back tonight to discuss the Carillon Point Apartments Master Plan Amendment. Um, I have five slides, should be less than 10 minutes. We'll just reintroduce the project and then briefly touch on the Council's discussion topics from the January 3rd meeting. Um, there's also member, members from the applicant team that are on the call virtually tonight in case there's follow-up questions. So the Carillon Point Apartments are located at 5604 Lakeview Drive. It's just south of Northeast 58th Street, adjacent to the CKC. And this proposed amendment includes um, a 3,000 square foot amenity building. There's two parking stalls, the ADA ramp, and then a variety of public amenities. And at the regular meeting on January 3rd, Council generally supported the proposal, but did ask for additional information on several items that you can see listed here. And the applicant prepared a response memo and exhibit, which was included in the packet. Um, they've revised portions of the first three items on here um, on the list, and that's reflected in conditions of approval in the draft resolution. So starting with the public restroom, council wanted a little bit more information on the utility line location, um, looking into ways to streamline construction or incorporate the restroom into the design itself. And constructing the public restroom is not part of the applicant's proposal. And the location of the utilities will be identified when they prepare the construction drawings for the building permit. But since those exact lines aren't known, um, at this time, they are going to provide an easement for the city's use. And to reflect this, a condition of approval was added to that draft resolution that has the applicant will grant utility easements to the city for future use of a public restroom or public amenities within the CKC. And on this graphic here, the proposed restroom shown is simply a graphical representation of what could be. Um, certainly, if or when the city decides to construct a restroom amendment, this or this amendment would grant that uh, utility easement, and then they could run the utility lines to a location that they see fit. Council also asked the applicant to explore additional um, benches and bike racks within the CKC right-of-way for public use. The proposal includes replacement of a standard size memorial bench for Doreen Marciani um, to a larger zigzag bench with more seating, and that bench actually incorporates four bike racks. But in response to Council's comment, the applicant will be adding two additional um, bike stalls adjacent to an existing bench just north on the CKC. So this also is reflected through a uh, second condition of approval um, for the applicant to provide those two additional bike stalls uh, in a location near the project within the CKC. Council also identified that the proposed pet relief station was located essentially at the base of the stairs that lead to Northeast 55th Street and requested that it be moved south. Um, the applicant has agreed to this and the third condition of approval that was added will have the installation of the pet relief station south of an existing gravel pathway uh, along the west side of the CKC in a location subject to approval by the city. Then for signage, council, um, 
specifically was looking for directional signage to connect the CKC down to Lakeview Drive and then ultimately Lake Washington. And the applicants clarified that their proposal does include two different pieces of signage. So the first is one that you see here. It's a small pedestal right next to that proposed zigzag bench. And then the second are four directional medallions that would be placed along that dashed pathway uh, leading from the CKC to Lakeview Drive. And the design and content of all these pieces of signage would be subject to approval, not only with the Public Works Department, but also the city manager's office during the building permit process. Council asked if the applicant had considered a green roof, and they've confirmed that they did, but they ultimately decided that it wasn't feasible. It creates a higher structural load, there's irrigation challenges, and also maintenance challenges. So still wanting to incorporate greenery into the project, they opted to uh, focus more heavily on ground vegetation. So the area surrounding the building, and then also near that zigzag bench that we talked about, um, which is much easier for long-term maintenance. Then council asked if the water bottle station would be for public use and if the applicant had considered adding a dog fountain. Uh, the water bottle station's not included in their public amenity package and it's not intended for public use because it's located adjacent to the building and to the building's entrance and it's within their private property. And then the last discussion topic was a final tree retention plan. Um, the applicant is proposing to remove those three cottonwoods and then five Douglas fir trees that surround the proposed building. And part of the amendment application did include an arborist report and the city's development review arborist took a preliminary look and determined that the cottonwoods do pose um, a risk for future structural issues, and then ask the applicant to provide more details through their construction drawings with the building permit for any um, potential development impacts for the fir trees. And once the applicant submits the construction drawings for their building permit, a uh, final retention plan will be reviewed and approved, and that's subject to um, Chapter 95 of the Zoning Code. So council's decisional criteria for the amendment are consistency with the application, or excuse me, consistency with the applicable development regulations, uh, the comprehensive plan and public health, safety and welfare. And finally, here are the decision options for tonight. Considering the hearing examiner's recommendation, council may either grant the application as recommended, modify and grant the application, deny it, or remand the matter back to the hearing examiner for further review. Staff are recommending that council grant the application with those modifications to include the three conditions of approval in the draft resolution. So that covers those utility easements, the additional bike stalls, and also shifting the pet station, pet relief station south on the CKC. Thank you. That's all I have. Thanks, Jennifer. Okay. Do we want to put a motion on the floor? Deputy Mayor. Madam Mayor, I move resolution R5570. Second. Been moved by Deputy Mayor Arnold, seconded by Council Member Black. Discussion? Deputy Mayor. 
just briefly because we've covered this over a couple of uh, uh, meetings in January, just for, for the public's benefit. When we say quasi-judicial, this means that we're evaluating whether this meets our code based on a recommendation from the hearings examiner. This is different than a master plan process where we have all sorts of latitude to require public benefit. This is already specified in code. Um, this, this particular development is happening on private property. It doesn't encroach on the Cross Kirkland Corridor. Public views are protected by the height of the structure and the location of the amenity building. Um, through this action, we think it's consistent with the requirements of an original master plan that was uh, 30 years ago, and the staff presentation mentioned a number of public benefits that are not required by code, but we're getting as part of this. So, um, in summary, uh, I think it uh, meets the criteria Thank and you. that we should approve it. Thank you for that. Any further discussion? Question is on the motion to approve resolution 5570, moved by De Deputy Mayor Arnold, seconded by Councilmember Black. All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Those opposed, motion carries unanimously. Resolution 5570 is approved. Takes us to item B, special events program updates. City Manager. Okay, thank you, Madam Mayor. So this is, we're hoping is our nearly final check-in on special events and special events policy. Uh, we're gonna be providing an update on what we did from the last council meeting and final recommendations, and then we're looking for council direction to be brought back at a future meeting for final action. So I'm here to make that presentation is John Lloyd, our Parks and Community Services Deputy Director, as well as our Special Projects Coordinator, Sudi Casey. Sorry, I'm just trying to get the screen shared and then we'll get going. And share the screen. Okay. Can you see the presentation? Yes, we can. Okay, good. Well, thank you, uh, City Manager Triplett. Uh, good evening, Mayor Sweet, Deputy Mayor Arnold, and fellow council members. Um, our present tonight, presentation tonight has only 20 slides. Um, and Throughout the presentation, we will be seeking your feedback on possible code changes. Um, so just to provide a real high-level overview, then I'm going to kick it over to Sudi. Um, as you know, we've, we've come to council um, on a variety of occasions. Like Kurt mentioned, we're hoping this is near our final um, visit to you all. Um, we've been discussing uh, policies, fees, um, cost recovery, you name it, we've been talking about it with special events. Um, we've got several uh, proposed changes to the municipal code we'll talk about. Um, seek your feedback, like I said, and then we'll talk about the next steps. Um, so with that, I'm going to kick it over to Sudi. Good evening. Uh, as you know, staff have made several presentations to council related to special events over the past few years. Presentations started back in 2019 and have provided background on the permitting process and regulations, fees, community feedback, and possible changes to the KMC. Our community outreach efforts included several listening sessions with multiple stakeholders. We met with the city's diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging staff, along with Kirkland Police Department leaders to discuss various policies and rules while research and benchmarking activities focused on state regulations and neighboring cities. While it's taken some time, these efforts have resulted in making progress towards revising the special event code and policies. Next slide, please. 
like I said, uh, last month or last month, uh, last October, we presented several recommended changes to the Kirkland Municipal Code. Um, as outlined in your memos or in your memo, there were several policies that we had consensus on that we reached agreement on. Um, those areas are highlighted on the screen. Um, for the sake of time, I don't want to dive into all of those, but I'm happy to answer any questions or refresh your memory about those changes. And so real quickly, does anyone have any questions on any of these policies or previously discussed items? I can't see anybody if you're raising your hand, so I apologize. Okay. Um, Not seeing any, John. Okay, perfect. Um, that brings us to really the heart of the conversation tonight. Uh, the three main topics that we'll be discussing and seeking your feedback on are event limits, event scheduling and prioritization, um, and event fees. Um, so like I said, we'll be spending a few minutes talking about each of the each of these areas and our proposed changes and recommendations, um, at which time we'll seek your feedback. So feel free to ask questions as we go through the slides or uh, along the way. Um, and I will first up, I'm going to kick it over to Sidney to talk about event limits. All right. So the KMC currently allows up to two, two special events per month per venue or along anyone's street. There are exemptions for city council designated community events and community programs like the Wednesday market, which do not count towards the limit. The two, per, two permit limit was put in place back in 2013 to mitigate the impacts of events on downtown businesses and residents while still maintaining a balance of events and the public's enjoyment of parks. Finding the right balance that meets everyone's needs is difficult. Uh, the feedback we've received over the past year is not universal. Some would like more events while others want no events. So there's no perfect solution that will allow for more events to take place while reducing impacts to the community. <clears throat> At the October meeting, uh, staff provided several options for council's consideration, but as we worked through the options, it led to more questions. Council's feedback at that time was to allow for more flexibility in the limits, which would allow for more culturally diverse events. Next slide, thank you. Uh, with those goals in mind, staff have two recommendations that will work in tandem with a proposed change to the event scheduling to get us to where we wanna go. <clears throat> First, staff recommends separating Marina Park and the Central Business District into two standalone venues. While this will impact downtown businesses, it'll double the number of permits allowed in the downtown core each month without causing further impacts to the public's access to Marina Park. It also practically addresses event limits for the future of Park Lane. And second, John, jump in here if, uh, <laughs> if this is, uh, if we need to clarify something here. Um, staff revised the previous recommendation to eliminate the community program event type we believe the better solution is to revise existing code that exempts community programs from the special event permit requirement and instead treat community programs like council designated community events, which are required to get a permit, but are not subject to the permit limitation. This change will allow staff to continue issuing one permit for the duration of the program while not, not counting against the two permit limit. So with that, We'd like to ask for council's feedback on these two recommendations. You okay with that? Looks like we're nodding, head nods, okay. Great. All right, the next topic for discussion is event scheduling. 
Uh, in October, we discussed the current policy, which states dates and venues will be reserved on a first come first serve basis, not more than one year prior to the proposed event, and the actual practice of holding dates and venues to ensure that no conflicts, um, that there are no conflicts with other activities. The current policy isn't perfect. It leaves the door open to scheduling conflicts. For example, if a new event applied for a date early in the month, it could potentially bump an annual event normally held later in the month. Also, some members of council felt the practice of guaranteeing dates so far in advance makes it difficult for new events to get a venue. Staff's last two proposals for council consideration included, one, adhering to the existing first come first serve policy, which council did not support, and two, was to establish an alternate application window for weekend and multi-day events. However, after further consideration, staff believe this would add to an already complicated process for organizers. Um, this change doesn't meet our goal to simplify and streamline the process, so staff no longer support this recommendation. At the October meeting, Council did show interest in a change to the application window so that events could be evaluated and selected each year. Staff have prepared a two-part recommendation, which we believe will address both Council's desire to create more flexibility and the need to provide event organizers with the advance notice they require in order to secure critical service vendors. I'm going to go over each part of the recommendation uh, before we ask for Council's feedback. The current process allows for organizers to submit an event interest form to request a venue and date up to one year in advance, and then organizers are notified within a couple of weeks of the status of their request. In order to provide more flexibility and an opportunity for new events to secure peak season dates, staff recommend modifying when interest forms are submitted, reviewed, and evaluated. The new process would create a priority review window Organizers would be able to submit their interest form 11 to 13 months in advance for priority consideration. Once the two-month window closes, all requests, be, um, all requests received would be evaluated and, if necessary, prioritized based on recommended criteria. Interest forms received after the window closes would continue to be processed on a first-come, first-served basis. Staff propose using these priority, priority evaluation criteria to resolve any conflicts with permit limits or requested dates and venues. The criteria address demonstrated history, purpose and cultural diversity, free and or low cost opportunities, opportunities for local involvement, nonprofit support, and council goals or initiatives. Now we'd like to ask for Council's feedback on modifying the event interest form process and support of the proposed uh, priority criteria. I'm not seeing a Deputy Mayor. Thank you, and thank you, Sudi. I um, uh, support the criteria that are here, what the, although there's one thing that is missing now that we're merging this with what was previously also had the multi-day and weekend events, and that's the economic development <clears throat> tourism impact. And I am wondering where that fits in within the current one or if that's something that could be added because we have a number of events. Uh, I'll take Little League World Series as one example 
that if you take a look at what Councilmember Nixon talks about in the Tourism Development Committee about bringing new people into Kirkland, getting heads and beds that should be a part of our prioritization criteria. Um, the disadvantage, or the even broader than that, though, just bringing people in from around the region that may not be within the, what's the TDC, a little bit, 50 miles? 50 miles. Yeah, I was saying bringing more people in the Kirkland from around the region, so looking at that, uh, those things. We can certainly add additional criteria like that. Um, and I would agree with that one entirely. Okay. Uh, Councilmember Nixon? Yeah, just quickly, um, John and Sudi, I, I can share with you the criteria that the TDC uses for the current uh, tourism grant program. There's like I think right now it's about nine different criteria that we look at. Not all of them would have to be considered uh, for this purpose, but um, but I, I agree with the deputy mayor that uh, we should look at business development or economic development and um, uh, tourism as criteria as well. Okay, uh, go ahead, Deputy. And just uh, Council Member Nixon and I had a conversation, and I didn't propose the tourism uh, criteria in its entirely because it's kind of uh, unwieldy, but hopefully you can use that as inspiration. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll look at it. And I don't want to say pick and choose, but pick and choose the, <laughs> the best parts of it. And we'll incorporate that into the. Okay, let's component. go. I think you. So, no other questions on. Scheduling or doesn't criteria? look like it. Nope. Awesome. Well, now we'll get to the uh, everyone's favorite topic. Uh, the last major issue that we were asked to address was event fees. Um, last time in October, there were several concerns about the uh, fee model presented. Um, specifically, you asked us to come back with an updated model that reduced the impact on event organizers. Um, we have made several um, changes to the fee structure to address your concerns. Uh, over the next few slides, I will provide an overview of the, the where we were our previous discussions, as well as the updated fee model, just to provide some some direction. So, um, as Sudi outlined earlier, we've been working on updating many of the details related to special events for several years now. Um, over the course of our different conversations, your direction has been to develop a fee structure that is simple and easy to understand. Rather than pursue a flat fee model, you requested an a la carte model be developed so that each event pays their fair share. Um, during the previous budget cycle, the 21-22 budget cycle, um, the special projects coordinator position was converted to a limited term position. Um, the expectation at the time was for us to look into funding the position using revenue generated through special event fees. When the position was later converted back to an ongoing position, um, it was determined that that level of cost recovery was no longer necessary. Um, however, we were pretty far down the road in developing the model. So we presented what the model looked like in October um, based on that original request. Um, but knowing that the, uh, the high costs um, to event organizers shown, um, or seeing the, the high cost that it was, would have put on event organizers, um, you requested that we further refine the model um, to reduce that impact. This slide shows a high level comparison of the, the current fee structure on the left compared to the proposed fee model on the right. Um, this is almost the exact same slide as I presented in October. Um, on the left side, um, uh, on the next slide, I'll provide more detail on the changes that, have, that we've made since the last meeting. Uh, as a reminder, the current fee structure includes a $50 application fee and a $110 event permit fee. Um, 
most events do not pay anything for park use. Um, the only spaces that event organizers pay a fee for include Heritage Hall, Marina Moorage, um, and closure of the Lakeshore Plaza or auxiliary parking lots. Um, like we discussed last time, the proposed fee model increases the application fee to $100, and it also increases the permit fee to a variable fee structure ranging from 250 to 500, depending on the size of the event. Um, the biggest difference in the, uh, the proposed fee model are the, um, excuse me, I lost my voice. The biggest difference in the proposed fee model uh, is that we actually are charging for uh, park use. Um, similar to the, the permit fee, park use fees are proposed to vary based on the size of the event. The larger the event, the greater the impact the event has on the park itself. Um, and by charging a rental fee to event organizers, um, they'd be held to the same standard as the community. Um, one item of note, the funding model does not talk about um, and does not address fees charged by other departments. Uh, those fees are managed by those other departments. Um, and those would be things like IFC permits, uh, variable message board, rental fees, police coverage for events, um, or other penalties that public works may charge. Um, so we only focused on the park fees and social event fees. So as I previously mentioned, the funding model was developed in order to fully fund the special projects coordinator position. Um, however, we anticipated um, that there would be some concern with the impact to events. Um, so we developed the model with a lot of flexibility in mind. Um, we did not have time to get into all the specifics during our last presentation, but we built in several ways this fee model could be adjusted to achieve a desired result. Um, the updated funding model included in your packet shows all these discounts um, whereas last time we didn't actually turn those levers on or turn those switches on to, to activate those discounts. Um, so on this slide, you'll see the, the kind of a summary of all the, the major changes that we did. Um, the first change was to lower the park use fees. Um, it was pretty clear feedback that the, the rates we proposed were a little high. Um, so the updated fees can be seen in attachment D. Um, and I, I will also show those um, on the screen here in a few slides. Second, we split apart the, the fees into weekday rates and weekend rates. Um, weekday rates would, would apply to events taking place Monday through Thursday with weekend rates being um, Friday through Sunday. Um, and the last um, and probably most impactful change was we included additional discounts based on the type of the event. Um, we felt that events um, that do not charge admission should receive an additional 50% discount on the park use fees, while city council designated community events would receive a 75% discount. Um, as a reminder, the currently the summer concert series and the and Winterfest are the two designated community events. Um, Celebrate Kirkland is and was still a designated community event, but it is no longer an outside event. It's a city event now, so it doesn't necessarily apply. Um, in a couple slides, I'm going to show how we break down all these fees, how these discounts work, um, just to really help spell out and show you how those um, calculations are working. Um, but next, I'm going to go through and just remind everyone of the different fee structures. So this slide shows the permit and application fees used in the model. Um, the far right column shows the discounts or the how the park fees would be adjusted based on the size of the event. So a large event would pay 100% of the park use fees. A medium event will pay 75% of the, the, the fee listed, and a small event will pay 50%. On this slide, you will see all the proposed uh, 
park use fees or rent, if you want to call it that. Um, these are the base rates. So when, when it says an event pays 100%, they would pay whatever the, the this rate would say. So 100% of Alloc Pavilion on the weekend would be a $720 fee. Um, if they were a medium event, they would pay the 75% of the fee and whatnot. Um, and then the, the last item was the event discounts. So free events um, would receive a 50% discount on top of their um, the, the rates reduced by their event size. Um, and then community events would receive a 75% discount. So So to put it all together, I wanted to provide an example um, of how the funding model calculated park fees for the evening concert series, because this one includes a variety of different um, elements in it. So details about this event are shown on the left side of the slide. Um, this event takes place uh, over seven different days at Marina Park on Thursday evenings. So the weekday rental rate for Marina Park would apply, um, which is $1,250 per day. This event is considered a medium-sized event, so it would pay 75% of the daily use rate. And, it, and as a designated community event, it would receive an additional 75% discount. So what that looks like. So to calculate the park use fees, first, what I do is I calculate the daily rate based on the event size. As a medium event, this event would be charged $937.50 per day. You multiply this times the number of event days to get your pre-discounted total of $6,562.50. Then you add in the 75% discount for being a designated community event. And the, the fee for this, the summer concert series comes down to $1,640.63. This was one example. I do want to provide one other example um, because I'm aware there are several questions about how the fees were calculated and what the fees should be for the, the Kirkland Wednesday market. So I have another example, um, and I'll walk you through these as well as a, a proposed alternate um, method. So similar to the last slide, the details are on the left, and then I'll show the calculations on the right. Um, this event takes place over 18 days at Marina Park on Wednesday afternoons. As with the previous example, the weekday rental rate for Marina Park is $12.50 per day. As a large event, this event would pay 100% of the daily usage rates. Um, and since the event is free, it would receive an additional 50% discount on the park use fees. So the standard fee structure, again, you calculate it out by um, figuring out the daily rate. As a large event, this event would be charged the $12.50 per day rate. Uh, multiply that by 18 days to get your pre-discount a total of $22,500. However, as this is a free event, it would qualify for an additional 50% discount, which brings this down to $11,250. After giving this further consideration, I know this doesn't match what's in the packet, uh, but I'm kind of showing this is how the fees would normally be calculated. Um, we, have a, we have an alternate recommendation for the, the Wednesday market. We knew that we wanted to get these fees lower, um, so we just proposed a flat rate in the memo. Um, but after giving it some further thought and kind of evaluating things, um, we have an alternate recommendation. Um, City Council could designate the Wednesday market as a community event, which would give the event a 75% discount on the park use fees. Um, most of the calculations are, are the same, 
but the larger discount for the community events brings the total park use fee down to $5,625. This recommendation would work with, within the overall funding structure as proposed. Um, as you proposed, one of our goals was to, of the overall process was to streamline and create efficiencies and eliminate one-offs and special carve-outs within the, the code and within the policy. Um, um, so if council desires to reduce the fees for the Wednesday market, this would be the, the recommended strategy. Um, additionally, if council wants to reduce those fees even further, that 75% discount, you could, you could change that to whatever you want, really. It could be 80%, 90%. Um, that was just a, a, a price that we put in the, the structure, so. I have a question for city manager. Yeah. Kirk, don't, do, do we not contract with the Kirkland <clears throat> Downtown Association to put on these events? We do. This event is one of their scopes of work. Okay. So we, we con contract with them to put on the, a number of events, including all the concert series. That's correct. Um, and then we pay them a certain amount of money to help them do that. And now we're going to send them a bill for $20,000 more than we've ever sent them before to continue putting those events on. I don't understand the logic of this when I think about it. And I think that's the feedback we're looking for. There, there's nothing that would stop us from deciding that this is an event that doesn't pay something beyond the application fee if the council is interested in that. We're trying to show a consistent methodology for all the events, but that's certainly because it's a partnership yeah, event. So that's why I wonder if there isn't something else that we should be talking about. I know that right now the KDA is in conversation with the with the city about what their contract should look like mm. around the 4th of July and all of the events. So it, it feels premature to me for us to agree to something. It, it, it's like they're a different animal. I, I don't know, uh, Councilmember Nixon. Um, thanks, Madam Mayor. Well, I, I have a specific proposal. Um, what I would propose is that we eliminate park rental fees and permit fees for events that are run by 501c3 organizations, which includes KDA, that are open to the general public free of charge. Um, so uh, basically, we'd be treating them the same way as we treat events that are run by Parks and Community Services, except for the application fee. Um, uh, I did some math on attachment E, and if we did this, based on the numbers in that chart, it would reduce the projected revenue by about $10,000 in uh, park rental fees and about $3,000 in permit fees, so 13000 total. And that still leaves you about $44,000 in revenue uh, from events uh, compared to the 56668 that the table shows now. Um, uh, and we could potentially require these uh, 501c3 general public free events to be council designated. Um, maybe that's more overhead than we want of, of having to look at all those, although it could be a one-pager that comes in on consent and you know, says, yeah, council designates this by passing the consent calendar. Um, but m my feeling is that the 501c3s that are sponsoring events are either doing it on behalf of the city or they're a cause that the city supports. And uh, they are 
by being open to the public free of charge, they're enhancing the quality of life in Kirkland, providing more opportunities for our citizens to get together. And these are things we should support and not burden with these additional fees. So that, that's my proposal, 501c3 sponsored, open to the general public free of charge, would have no permit fees and no park rental fees. Councilmember Paschal. Uh, good proposal, uh, Councilmember Nixon. I guess, you know, thinking about this, I before I heard uh, the mayor speak, uh, I was thinking we were on the right track. Except the things that did s stick out to me when I was reviewing the packet were the the Wednesday market and the concert series, both the kids and the Thursday evening ones. Uh, and you know, and then we also did receive that letter today, this afternoon, from the Kirkland Downtown Association. So it kind of solidified in my mind that that I do th I do think we need to, to modify uh, things. Um, and I guess the question for me, though, is whether to go, you know, Toby, uh, Councilmember Nixon, with your, your proposal that's kind of more overarching or just be more surgical with, you know, the concerts and the and uh, the the Wednesday market. That's that's the only thing I'm wrestling with in my head. So, but I, I think that's some some work that that staff can do and kind of compare or contrast it to. At least in my mind, that was kind of what I would I would ask for, is to is to look at that um, and see what makes the most sense. Thank you, Councilmember Curtis. Thank you, Madam Mayor. And first, Sudi and uh, John and Lynn, we recognize how hard you've worked on this. <laughs> and that uh, you've, it's hard, it's challenging, and you've worked with a lot of stakeholders and a lot of event planners, and so, so forgive us for continuing to meddle, but here we are. Um, I also think that KDA is a special circumstance. Um, you know, as the mayor said, we provide them funding to put on these events, and then we wanna turn around and take money away from them for putting on events that we support and want to happen, and these are free, they draw visitors to the park, they provide activities for families and children, they support local businesses, they help businesses launch. The Wednesday market lets people test their, uh, their commodity, their business, so that they can go turn around and create a storefront down the road. So um, I'm with Councilmember, I, I appreciate Councilmember Nixon's suggestion, um, but I wouldn't put everybody in the same bucket. I think KDA is special. Uh, my suggestion for KDA is to go ahead and charge the application fee and the permit fee, but not charge the park usage fee. So you just got three different answers from three different council members. But I do feel like um, KDA needs to be managed in a different way. Thank you. Councilmember Black. Thank you, Madam Mayor. I'm going to make a fourth suggestion. <laughs> no, um, I I actually so I really like well I, re I like everything that's been said. Actually, I, I like uh, Councilmember Nixon's idea. It's 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 definitely a uh, you know much bigger umbrella. Um, I like what uh, Councilmember Pascal is saying. You could maybe the you know i don't want to put words in your mouth but maybe the big umbrella doesn't quite make sense maybe something more surgical which kind of leads uh, i think councilmember curtis is talking about is something surgical for kda i'm wondering if there's a middle ground which is um taking what councilmember nixon has proposed 501c3 
free to the public and adding instead of tar instead of sort of having a targeted at uh, particular events or a particular organization, what we could say as a principle that we could apply to new situations in the future, even if circumstances change, would be something like 501c3 open to the public, free, free to the public plus grant funded by the city. Um, if you have those three elements, and I think KDA would fall underneath that, then perhaps and I don't know between Councilmember Curtis and Councilmember Nixon's ideas of which fees would get waived, but let's just suffice it to say that certain fees would be waived. So that, we, that would be, I would like to get clarification on that because it's, there's lots of other fees beyond park fees. So I just want to see what we're, what we're waiving for them so we're clear. I think we're talking about the new use of park fees. Probably, yeah. So, okay. And not the police right. fees and those kind of things or fire, fire department fees. Is that clear, John? Yes. And so if we could come up with a principle, I'm going to call this a principled approach, a principled approach that we could apply to even new circumstances that haven't arisen yet. Um, I kind of like that idea. New organization that um, you know, we could apply the same principle. Um, and it kind of goes to what Councilmember Curtis is saying. We're, we're, we're grant funding <laughs> money to these organizations, and then we're asking them to turn around and pay it back to us. Um, so that's what I would suggest. I don't actually mean, I was joking when I said it's a fourth way. I'm hoping actually it's a little bit of a compromise right down the middle way that we can all, maybe some of my colleagues can nod, you know, agree with too. I think these guys can come back with something. Hmm. Could I? Lynn, did you want to say something? Yeah, can we I can just, uh, run a couple of scenarios and bring them back. Hmm. So I just, if I may, I just want to make one observation that maybe ask if we could lean more towards the Councilmember Curtis concept because, so example, Trump changed the 501c3. Um, what we'd see is some moving to everybody saying they're a 501c3, you know, so I just think we want to make sure that the goal we thought was if you want to protect some of the partnership organizations, we could do something like that. Madam Mayor. Uh, go ahead. But to, to be clear, Trump change is not free and open to the general public. That's why 501c3 is not sufficient. Mm -hmm. It's a 501c3 sponsored event that is open to the general public free of charge. So I, I think that's an important distinction. I think what my concern would be is that what I think will likely happen is they'll approach you and say, half of this is going to be free and open to the public. And so can we have a 50% discount on the 50% discount? Right? So just I think trying to get to simplicity. Um, but the goal is, is certainly not to overburden, especially partnership organizations like the KDA. So uh, why don't we come back with, with a couple uh, tiered options on this? But are you okay with the rest of the fee categories with still some more work to be done on like the Wednesday market and the concerts in the park and the, and the sort of partnership groups? I think so. And we could have a 501c3 option like you discussed, Councilor Dixon. Because I'm, I'm, when I look at it, I look at Hope Link puts on the turkey trot, but they but they sell tickets to that, so they it's so they free. pay. Um, and that and there sense. are races that, that have a the, so we you've you've hit on a few things that we kind of expected to be questions. If any portion of the event was paid, we would treat the entire event as a paid event, and that would be written into the the, spec, the, the deal. There are some events that have a suggested donation that you have to make in order to enter the race 
that would be considered a paid event as well. Right. Um, it's strictly, you don't have to pay anything. You can go experience the event. You can go watch the concert. You can go walk around the market. Those would be the free events that we were envisioning. Uh, Councilmember Curtis. Um, I have one more question that aligns to what we're talking about before we move off. And um, in our standards, we say uh, that uh, the criteria for, um, oh, I need a break. The criteria says directly benefits a nonprofit organization serving Kirkland residents. But that's so open-ended. And does that mean that they provide 10% of their profits to a nonprofit or $50 or so since we're coming back with this, I would really appreciate if you look at that again and provide more specificity around how they how these organizations directly benefit a nonprofit. Just adding to the meddling and your headaches, future hmm. headaches. <laughs> Anything else? So just we don't we don't currently set those kind of limits because we don't know what that organization might make and there's a lot of different variables they have like if it rained or or things like that so we certainly could try to draft some but that also gets complicated fairly quickly. So that might be the answer that comes back, um, Councilmember Black. Thank you, Madam Mayor. One quick point of clarification, just because City Manager did. Um, follow up our discussion with the with the question about chump change. So in my, I just want to be clear, my proposal would be they'd have to meet all three elements. Mm -hmm. 501c3, free of the public, much in the way that um, Deputy Director Lloyd described. Um, basically, they can't charge anything. Um, and it's an organization that the city provides grant funding to. If they met all three of those elements, then they would get the special treatment that, we're, that, I, that I think some of my colleagues are describing. Mm -hmm. Councilmember Curtis. I see. But, but is it grant funding or is it tourism development grant funding? We have to be specific about yeah. the funding we're providing. City provides funding. Thank you. Councilmember Curtis. Yeah, and um, KDA funding, for example, does not come from tourism funds, so it wouldn't be linked there. Um, but like looking at the list of events, uh, one of them is uh, sponsored by. Um, Studio East, which is definitely a 501c3. Um, but I'm not sure that they get funding outside of the tourism program. They do get funding from the tourism program, but I don't think they get funding outside of the tourism program. So that would be an interesting discussion. I, I believe they get their admissions tax refunded, but other than that, I don't think. Okay. And um, one of the ones that's free and sponsored by a nonprofit is the Waterfront Car Show. This is a big event. Um, it brings a lot of people into downtown, um, but it's it's free. It's free to the public, but the, but the cars paid an entry fee to participate. Right. So I, I would think that that would not qualify then. Well, so I mean that's a good question. The ones does the Wednesday market charge people a fee for the tables that they rent? So I I did not consider that to be. Um, because the events still have operating costs they need to cover. So I think the fact that they charge um, like the, the car drivers or, or car owners to bring their car in or a, an arts and crafts person to have a table at the Wednesday the market, I don't think that, yeah. I don't think that um, would disqualify them. It's the fact that it's free entry to the public that I think is the key thing. 
Okay. You got what you need. Well, I, th I think we do, except we for one small subcategory that we're going to work back back around. But we can adopt this structure. We just need to come back with this, some further options on the nonprofit-related and partnership-related events. Great. So we will come up with something. So appreciate your feedback. Oh, John, she's not done. Yep. <laughs> I'm still here. All right. Thank you. I just have some a couple comments on the KMC. Mm -hmm. um, we, on 1924.010, under definitions, um, we changed, uh, we say community holiday or tradition, and I would suggest that we say or special event. Tradition feels too traditional and restrictive, and I'm thinking a special event if a community member goes to Mars or they won a Nobel Peace Prize. So I think that... Um, community holiday or tradition just boxes us in. Um, we talk specifically about beer and wine gardens. What if somebody wants to do a whiskey garden or cider tasting? So I'm wondering if we want to revise that definition. And in 1924-05, we used the word citizens, and we've been using community, <coughs> community oh, members yeah. rather than citizens. Thank you. Good catch. I tried to catch all those. OK. Are we done with this topic? Okay, then we're going well, to... Oh, we'll be back. Don't you worry. Oh, I know. <laughs> All right. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, with that, I think we're going to take a 15-minute break, and we'll come back in 15 minutes. Somebody do the ad math. Huh? 30, 30, 38. Yeah. Thank you. We are back in session after a short break, and we are at item number C on our um, business agenda, our 2023 legislative agenda update. City Manager. Okay. Thank you, Madam Mayor. To provide that update is our Government Affairs Manager, Diana Hart. Welcome, Diana. There we go. There's a neat button. Uh, good evening, Council. Thank you, City Manager. Um, tonight, we have the second legislative update of the 2023 legislative session. Uh, I um, have three quick topics I'll be covering with you and then turning things uh, back to you for conversation. Um, we'll kick things off with an update of where we are in session right now. Um, last meeting, uh, we were in week two. We're officially now in month two. The first round of cutoff deadlines are rapidly approaching with the policy committee cutoff coming next week. Last meeting, we had more than 800 bills introduced. Now we're over 1,500. For reference, around 1,000 bills were introduced um, during each of the last two sessions. We are now on track to easily meet or exceed even pre-pandemic legislation levels. So definitely a, a big volume of bills this year. We're tracking more than 300 bills and staff have already completed nearly 450 reviews. As I noted last time, we'll have a much better sense of what legislation has legs and we're best to focus our efforts with the passage of the committee cutoffs and House of Origin cutoffs later this month. At your next meeting, we'll have crossed the first big hurdle and the legislature will be in the big fiscal committee push before completely changing gears and going almost full time on the floor. 
And that takes us to an update on how it's going so far this session. Starting with the housing focused legislative priorities, the Senate version of our accessory dwelling unit or ADU bill has made it out of the policy committee. The bill has been narrowed to be a King County pilot program to address some implementation workload concerns by assessors of other counties. This approach has strong bipartisan support, is the top priority of the King County assessor, and is continuing to move the process with its public hearing in the fiscal committee yesterday. Due to limited availability of council members, uh, City Manager Triplett testified at that hearing. The House version of our ADU bill has been introduced by Representative Kloba and will receive its public hearing tomorrow. We anticipate that this bill will be also narrowed to be a King County pilot and Councilmember Black and our lobbyist Brian Enslow will testify at the hearing tomorrow to speak about the overarching policy and the technical aspects of the bill. And the long anticipated REIT bill has been introduced by former Speaker Chop and has over 30 co-sponsors. Um, the bill had its hearing earlier today where Councilmember Curtis joined local officials from around the state to testify in support and is scheduled to be um, exec out of committee later this week. As the rest of the priority agenda is a little more general than in years past, and with the high volume of bills this session, there are a lot of bills that fall into the policy buckets of the priority agenda. You may have noticed quite a few bills with the priority checkbox on our bill tracker compared to years past. As we don't have the capacity to treat each of those bills as our own, like the ADU or REIT bill I mentioned on the last slide, we are leaning on our ally organizations and bill sponsors to flag key testimony opportunities or legislation most likely to move the furthest as we continue to review all the incoming legislation. We'll see that reflected in the much larger list of bills that we signed in support versus testified in support. Um, starting with the bills that we testified since your last meeting, um, Senate Bill 5493 um, was an affordable housing funding proposal that eliminates a BNO tax exemption. Councilmember Black testified on January 25th, and then House Bill 1589 flagged by staff as a sustainability bill that aligns with our um, sustainability master plan. Deputy Mayor Arnold testified yesterday. Signing in support. Um, our lobbyists, Brian Enslow and Brian McConaughey, also signed in or are signing Kirkland in support of a lengthy list of bills uh, related to gun. Oh, sorry. Oops, nope, going back. Sorry. Very way of clicking. Um, uh, related to gun safety, Senate Bill 5078, protecting public safety by establishing duties of firearm industry members. Related to housing, that long list of bills includes lot splitting, local permit review processes, utility connection charges, ADU construction, missing middle, condo affordability, multifamily tax exemption extensions, transit-oriented development, emergency, emergency shelter standards, and affordable housing prevention. Related to behavioral health, we had House Bill 1348, establishing the profession of a behavioral health support specialist at the University of Washington. Um, related to sustainability, we had bills related to energy labeling of residential buildings, battery stewardship, transportation funding for bicycle and pedestrian facilities, and energy and buildings. Related to reproductive rights, there are a handful of bills related to cost sharing for abortions, constitutional amendment to address reproductive freedom, and health data collection, sharing, and selling. And then sort of falling into the general principles or council goal bucket, we had a handful of bills related to public works assistance, revolving accounts, pedestrian safety, tax increment finance, 
um, financing technical fixes, eligibility for law enforcement positions, and Washington State tourism funding. And then the loan bill in which we have signed in in opposition is House Bill 1025, the private right of action for harm from violations by peace officers. This bill increases liability for cities and individual police officers, making it more expensive for cities to secure insurance and likely exacerbating the difficulty in recruiting or retaining strong candidates to serve in these positions. As I noted last time, there are a lot of great bills, lots of bills that could be great with some modifications a good number of bills that don't align with our values. Things are moving quickly and changing often, so we will miss some opportunities to participate in every piece of legislation that does impact the city. We'll continue evaluating, tracking, and monitoring legislation to see what has legs over the next few weeks. And so that takes me back to the discussion slide. Um, we'll start with a flag that the bill tracker in your packet um, the stated positions there are the recommendations by the legislative work group and are considered acknowledged by council after this discussion unless you want to pull any for further conversation. And then the three bills that I wanted to provide some process updates um, on to sort of kick off your conversation um, starts with an update on the Blake decision fix. There um, are a handful of different proposals to pick back up the drug possession legality question in response to the state Supreme Court's Blake decision a few years ago. Yesterday morning, the Senate Law and Justice Committee had their Blake fix hearing day that heard most of the proposals under consideration in the Senate. They each tackled the problem in a variety of different ways, most of which proposed making drug possession a misdemeanor with varying degrees of diversion program requirements and coordination. We will continue to track this legislation and can provide a more we can provide more updates as the policy direction that the legislature will be taking becomes more clear. Similarly, vehicular pursuits, there are a handful of different proposals to address the repeatedly requested vehicular pursuit limitation imposed on police over the last few years. Recommendations range from a full transition back to the old standard, subtle modifications to address some specific concerns putting together a study group to recommend proposals in future sessions. As with the Blake Fix proposals, we're continuing to track the legislation under consideration and continue to provide updates. And then a new uh, topic that I wanted to flag for conversation was the 1% property tax cap. As recommended by the state's tax structure work group um, that has been convening over the last year, um, there are currently two different proposals to lift the 1% property tax cap. The House version is sponsored by Representative Ormsby, Ormsby, the Appropriations Chair in the House, and the Senate version is sponsored by um, our Senator Cooter. Both effectively propose lifting the property tax cap to reflect CPI and population increase with a cap of 3%. Um, the policy has been on the city's priority agenda in years past, but has dropped off over time and as these policies, um, as these policies lost traction. While we won't know for a while how mobile these policies will be this year, there's quite a bit of interest and momentum in at least starting the conversation again, which is a great start for um, potentially making some actual traction on this um, moving forward. And that's what I have for you for tonight. Happy to turn things back to you and as usual, answer any questions that you have. Thanks, Diana. Madam Chair. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, Couple things. First, thank you, Diana. You're doing an awesome job, and we're having fun, even though the the, the avalanche of bills that we're seeing. And 
I really want to thank our subject matter experts because they are working so hard. And if you've taken the time to look at their reviews of the bills, they're, they're thorough, they're thoughtful, they're comprehensive, and I recognize that it's a big investment of their time on top of everything else. So thank you to staff, thank you to everyone. Um, Diana just mentioned HB 1670, which is raising the 1% cap on property taxes. It's not on our legislative, legislative agenda. I would like council's support to elevate this bill into our prior priorities so that it'll allow us to sign on and testify. So I'm uh, looking for some thumbs up on that from everyone. Okay. I think so. I think we got a majority here. Yeah. All right. Um, and then I can't believe, I don't know if I've said this last time, but um, the sustainability bills are a lot and our statement is broad. And so we are asking our subject matter experts to go back through the bills and designate which bills are in our sustainability master plan that the council has already approved. And that helps us prioritize what sustainability bills that we put our energy behind. Um, last thing, thank you to everyone who follows up with D Diana when they've received um, requests to testify. We really appreciate that. Just a reminder that if you do testify on your own behalf to send Diana a copy of your testimony. I think that's it. Thank you, everyone. Great. Uh, Deputy Mayor Arnold. Thank you, Madam Mayor, and thank you, Diana, for all your work on an incredible session. I had no idea the number of bills. And each of those years, we were hearing from the team on how that was a record. And this is uh, three times that. I would note that um, most of this council is going to be at Association of Washington Cities in Olympia next week. Is there anything that we need to know or, or decide as a council? Diana, you want to take that? or yeah. Go ahead, Diana. I was going to say, not that we know of, but you are working on the schedule. Yeah, not yet. We have um, meetings scheduled with, I think, all but one of our members. Um, and so we'll have a, a full schedule for everyone and we'll kind of divvy up um, who will attend which meetings. But we're very excited to get some time with all of our members um, and spend some time with them at the Eastside dinner um, on Wednesday night. And as I t mentioned to Deputy Mayor Arnold this afternoon, we're going to try and do something at the ledge meeting on on Friday to talk about how to make that dinner a little bit more meaningful uh, rather than just a bunch of talking heads. So we'll see what we can do. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Diana. All right. So that takes us to Board and Commission Interview Committee Selection. I think all you have to do is call in the city manager. Yeah, so as you know, the city clerk will be pulling three names to select the interview selection committee, and then we'll be working with you to schedule a time for the, the preview. Excellent. Okay. Number one is Councilmember Pascal. And number two, Councilmember Falcone. This is it. And <laughs> Deputy Mayor Arnold. Three leaders, great. Okay, um, and have, you're gonna set that up, Kathy? Okay. 
This takes us to reports, city council, regional, and committee reports. I noticed that we put the uh, city council committee assignment discussion in here. Do we want to? Yeah. So just the this is different than the retreat conversation you had about how you select assignments. Uh, this was just an opportunity since we normally do this for two years. If any council member had a change they needed to make, given an assignment they got or a request they wanted to make of the mayor, that we thought this would be the time for that. So in the packet you have the current list of committees, and we just wanted to have one opportunity for council members. If they needed to say something to the mayor and deputy mayor, this would be that time. And I'm gonna, I'm just gonna ask uh, Council Member Pascal, I noticed that you don't have the Cascade Water Alliance Resource Committee on here. Do you want that added? I mean, I, I guess since you have the Finance Committee listed, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, because yeah, I, I didn't know if those subcommittees belong on this or not. I, I, I we yeah. generally we have listed them. Oh, okay. I will update Amy with, with those two. Okay. 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 With that, I think I'll go backwards. This Madam Mayor. Oh. One thing: if we're updating committees related to those, uh, I would note that I'm on the State Building Code Council Legislative. Committee, so if you can okay, note that thank you. on the matrix as well. Thank you. All right. All right. And start with you tonight, Deputy Mayor. No report. Thank you, Councilmember Pascal. Uh, just uh, two two things on uh, committee reports. First, the Regional Transit Committee, uh, Kimberly will be sending out the notes from the last two meetings. Um, we've been waiting on just analyzing the the, the routes within within uh, Kirkland, so that we could include updated information on how those routes are performing, uh, because that directly relates to. You know, future considerations for service enhancements and things like that. So that should be coming to all of you um, soon. The second piece is, I was trying to remember. We we did meet with uh, Councilmember Falcone. I and um, City Manager met with the Lake Washington School District on January twenty seventh. I think that was yeah, that was after our last meeting. Uh, it was as usual. It's always a very uh, great great meeting to kind of check in and. And we, we cover so many different topics, um, but we talked about, you know, the 85th Street Station Area Plan, the Transportation Benefit District, Houghton Village, uh, Health Through Housing, uh, Traffic Cameras, um, the Parks Exploratory Committee, uh, School Resource Officers. So lots of good subjects, and Andreana took some really good notes, and she'll be sending those out as soon as we get concurrence from the school district, which tends to take you know, a few weeks. <laughs> Great. I'm glad you're able to do that, though. Uh, Councilmember Curtis. Thank you, Madam Mayor. I was looking at my phone to look at my dates um, to see if I had reported on PFEC the last time. Um, we discussed the Houghton Park and Ride with PFEC. Everybody took it in stride. Um, we are continuing to be highly engaged. We're getting some really tough, good questions from yeah. PFEC members. Um, they're keeping us on our toes. Um, Thursday meeting will be defining. We'll start narrowing it down. It's a tough process, and um, yeah. So we're continuing to narrow it down, and I'm looking forward to, oh, we had our feasibility study with the Aquatic Center on the last meeting, and so I'm looking forward to council taking a look on those 
on the 21st. Um, GMPC, uh, no surprise, I am now the GMP SEA caucus chair. Okay. So um, we will be hosting GMPC and AHC February 23rd in Kirkland, and we are buying everyone a lunch because food makes people work better together. Um, the pick tomorrow night is going to be discussing the Affordable Housing Committee recommendations. So Council Member and uh, Falcone and I are switching, and she will be attending PIC okay. tomorrow night so she can speak. What did you say? Uh, she did. Oh, oh <laughs> I might be there. The plan was she was going to speak directly to the Affordable Housing uh, Committee recommendations, but since she's not feeling well, I better rethink that um, and plan to attend myself. I think I'm going to be there for the rate discussion for solid waste. Okay. All right. Thank you. Uh, Councilmember Black. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Uh, not much to report. One thing I just wanted to, I don't usually report on the Regional Law Safety and Justice Committee, um, but I did want to sort of emphasize, just so uh, my colleagues know, just um, behavioral health uh, crisis response is going to continue being one of the hottest topics discussed by the Regional Law Safety Justice Committee. And we now have on, uh, as a agenda item, at every meeting, a report out by the Sound Cities Association um, representatives, and I'm one of them. I'm just proud that we, Kirkland basically takes the Sound City Association report at every meeting because we have something to report on our efforts on behavioral health, uh, crisis response, and, um, and also just being subject matter experts, too, on some of the legislation that's going on that's related to re regional uh, or to public safety, and I, that comes from the hard work of our legislative work group. So I just think that's super exciting. I wanted to sort of give a shout out to all of, to the uh, the council and the city and um, all the effort that we're doing in that regard. Um, I'm going to uh, play Councilmember Falcone's role on just one item and let folks in the public know about Snyder's Corner Dog Park. Mm -hmm. um, uh, what are we calling that? A ribbon cutting? Uh, openings? Yeah. Anyway, a little celebration on Saturday, uh, I think, at 1 o'clock um, at Snyder's Corner Park uh, to celebrate uh, the Snyder's Corner Park. So certainly anyone who's listening, uh, public's welcome. Uh, and then, Mayor, you're going to talk about your um, State of the City address? No, not till it happens. <laughs> okay. All right. That's it for me. Thank you. All right. Good. Councilmember Nixon. Well, thank you, Madam Mayor. I don't have anything to report from meetings, but on that um, table of council committee assignments, I just wanted to observe that the second line from the bottom of the page can be deleted. Oh, good point. I noticed that myself. <clears throat> yeah, that was highlighted, and that will be taken care of. So, Thank you for that. Um, I don't actually have anything to report. I think you all got the Cascade Water Alliance report from the board meeting. And I think regional water quality will be coming out in a few days. Hmm. With that, I'll turn that over to you, city manager. Okay. So I'm going to use my president of racer hat for just a second to give council an update to follow on Councilman Black's uh, comments. So this week and next week are an exciting time for racer. We are actually starting interviews for executive directors. We had a unanimous approval of the executive director hiring process. So. Just reading my notes. So February 8th, tomorrow, and February 10th, two different groups of the 
boards. There's five members of the board, so two groups of two, not me. <laughs> the other two um, will also have a police chief, a mental health partner, and, a diff and another professional on the panel, and they're going to interview eight finalists. We had a really good pool of potential executive directors. The following week, I am going to be hosting the current community responders and cultural navigators from Radar and Kirkland, as well as any member of the community advisory board from Radar to meet with the potential four finalists. And then we're gonna be giving our recommendations to the full board, which is gonna take up the interviews of the top three, top four, the last week of February. So very excited about getting all of this input. And like I said, we have a really strong group of eight, we believe, and we're pretty excited to see what comes out of that for the final. So. Our goal is to hopefully have a decision by the first week of March, and obviously we'd love to have an executive director on as soon as possible after that. But So the board's still working really well together. Everything's going great. We're getting fantastic support from Carly Jorger and the rest of the um, City of Kirkland team. It's been going very, very well. Um, on the crisis response clinic side of things, we've been having ongoing talks with Connections, and Connections is now... Um, having had to look at a lot of different options, is now back to looking at Kirkland as their primary location. And uh, Morgan Matthews, who's the Vice President of Connections, is actually going to be reaching out to each of you for an opportunity to talk with you about the potential site and uh, just sort of share interests and ideas. So look for that. It's going to come through Beth and Amy Bolin. And you don't need to meet with her, but if you want to, she's making that opportunity available. So. That is my highlight on RACER and the crisis clinic. Let me just see if anyone has any questions on that before we go any further. E &E. Okay. And then my last update, uh, as I saw, you all saw, and I sent an email out, um, King County and the city of Seattle announced on Monday that they were um, eliminating requiring vaccination for COVID-19 as a condition of hiring. Um, that impact, impacts all of their employees and all their criteria, but also impacts the uh, firefighters, EMTs, that were part of the contract requirement that King County had for all firefighter departments in King County. We have a director's meeting tomorrow. We're going to assess Kirkland's response to all of that. Our current MOU does require that we then look at reinstatement of any, any firefighters who meet the qualifications who wish to be reinstated. Um, but beyond that, we'll also be looking at whether or not we also um, phase out our requirement. We currently have a requirement that people are vaccinated as well. So. I uh, will have more to say about that, but obviously that's a big transition for everybody. And um, we'll be trying to do that thoughtfully and keep as many health precautions as we can while at the same time recognizing that this is sort of moving into an endemic status. Right. So those are my updates, Madam Mayor. I'm happy to answer Thanks any questions on that. Do you need calendar updates? That was my next one. Yeah, so. uh, all right, and so then any calendar <laughs> items? I don't see any. All right, so that concludes my report, and I believe we still have an executive session on potential litigation after the last items on the agenda. So that will move us to our executive session. We will now go into an executive session to discuss the one issue, um, potential litigation. We will um, expect to reconvene our regular meeting at approximately, how much time do we need? 10 minutes, so approximately 10, 15. Um, And we will, yeah, only for the purposes of adjournment, sorry. So with that, 
We're out of here.